0: Hi there, this is Vic Mignogna, Captain Kirk from Star Trek Continues, and you're listening to part one, A Journey to Future's Past, the 100th episode of Trek Geeks Podcast with Dan Davidson and Bill Smith.
1: Welcome to the biggest little show this side of the Alpha Quadrant and to episode 100 of the Trek Geeks podcast. I'm your guest host, Norman Lau, from Blood of Kings, a Highlander podcast on the Fandom Podcast Network. Blood of Kings is about all things Highlander. It's about the movie from 1986, celebrating the 30 year anniversary, and now in 2017, celebrating the 25th anniversary of the television show. So please visit Blood of Kings on the Fandom Podcast Network. So why are you listening to me? Why am I on the show? Who am I? Aren't you Norm? Well, Bill and Dan, they gave me the great honor of coming on the show and guest hosting episode 100. This is a milestone for podcasting in general, not just for them, but for the podcasting experience. And I, it's hard for me to put the... the how I feel in words right now because and when you hear a little bit of that sidestep chatter, it's because real emotion is coming out as a podcaster. I'm not reading off of a script. I'm actually feeling genuine thanks and gratefulness. And this is a fantastic opportunity to get to know them and, and understand where they have come from in this great 100-episode journey. So when did I first meet Bill and Dan? I think that it was at the Star Trek convention, and I was in a fantastic costume, and one of my, uh, well, actually, it's the only costume that was actually even recognized in, because one, it was a deep-dive costume. Two, it was because it was one of the only significant Asian characters aside from Sulu in Star Trek in the original series, and that was Governor Corey. Bill and Dan came up to me. Uh, They have uh, been friends of mine. They've listened to some of my shows on Trek FM. We've got to get a chance to know each other really well. And uh, I was grateful to be able to actually shake their hands and thank them in person. So thank you, Bill and Dan, for inviting me on the show. But enough about me. Let's get to more me. I'm just kidding. Let's get to more Bill and Dan. So here we are, your 100th episode real hosts of Trek Geeks, Dan Davidson and Bill.
2: How are you? Uh, fantastic I, it, it, we are so elated that you were here to share this with us and with our listeners it's uh it, it's exciting you know we've we've been kind of you know um i guess anxious for the hundredth episode because it's it's really a departure for us and um i just uh, i'm happy to celebrate it because it is such a huge milestone
3: i uh i have to um echo those sentiments from bill of course being able to talk to somebody else on the podcast is is just such an honor for me and and my ears don't hurt as much as they (laughs) usually do uh so it's really great Oh man! but in all seriousness um it's hard to believe that we've been doing this for a hundred episodes now plus uh, with the supplementals and things but um could not be more excited and proud of 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 what bill has done and 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 what we have been able to do over the past couple of years um, and in expressing our love of this thing called Star Trek and expressing our friendship uh, in a way that people seem to enjoy. And so uh, I'm very, very thankful.
1: Well, as as you may know, it's a very difficult thing to to do one episode, let alone 10, let alone yeah. 50. To get to this particular milestone in podcasting, you have to have perseverance. You have to have a real aptitude towards it. You have to be willing to grow and to learn and take the licks take criticisms and compliments and and move forward and forge your way f- into the stylization that you have in a podcast so what does this mean to you i mean when you look back at the overall career of when you first started how does this make you feel does it make you feel prideful does it make you feel like oh my god we're done do you still have a lot to explore and discover where do you feel you are right now are you hitting your stride hmm. you go ahead dan
3: um I don't I don't know if I'd want to say we're hitting our stride. I will say that over the past few months uh, pretty much after every recording Bill and I are just ecstatic because things flow so well. We've really gotten to read off of each other really well and continue the conversation and Bill's able to admit when he's wrong about things and and it's usually <laughs> most of the time. No, I'm just kidding. But It's uh, a lot. It's it, yeah. Um it's it's surreal. I think is a good word to use Norm because As we were talking about before we started recording, that first episode, 99 episodes ago, that's brutal, man. (laughs) 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 Listening to it and and to see how things have developed over time. Um, We've gotten to uh, discuss so many great things. Uh, But I said it a moment ago, and I'll say it again. This podcast is the ability for Bill and I to look at the Star Trek universe through a 20-year-plus friendship, and that's the most important part of it for me.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, I I have to echo that 100%, you know. And thinking about this earlier today, you know, we announced on Camp Ketimer that we had our 100,000th download off our feed today. And it's it's kind of neat. You know, it made me, I'm not going to lie, I'm an emotional guy. It made me a little misty-eyed. Mm-hmm. You know, to think that there are people who, you know, access, you know, their fandom through our podcast. You know, our podcast has become an extension of how they enjoy Star Trek, and that that truly means the world to me. You know, I I never really thought that that would be a byproduct of of us just getting together and, and talking about Trek. So, uh, I uh, where are we? Uh, I think we're just really getting started. You know, this is one hundred. I I can't wait to do this again at eleven hundred. You know, or. Or twenty one hundred, you know, God willing, if if you believe in that sort of thing, Um, I think that we, I hope our stride is coming at some point. I don't know that we've hit it yet, but I'm happy for the experience so far. Well, one of the things that listeners like hearing, they like hearing the impetus,
1: the origin story. Why did you guys decide to do this? Why did you guys decide to join forces? And (laughs) there's a little bit of a chuckle there um there's there's a point in time where friends to get together and podcast and it's almost as if you know what we would have these discussions anyway let's just throw a microphone in front of us and go for broke and see what happens so how did this all start was there a specific conversation was there something like hey i'm gonna get on the phone with dan
2: bill let's get let's talk about star trek because we miss it so much how did how did it go we were at uh Trek Boss, the creation convention in Boston in what was that, 2014, Dan? Twenty
3: fourteen, yes, sir.
2: And you and I at that point hadn't seen each other physically in a decade at least. Right. Mm-hmm. And we said, well, you know what? Neither we haven't been to a Star Trek convention together. Let's let's go to Trek Boss because Avery Brooks was supposed to be there. Spoiler alert, he canceled. Um, you know, uh, Garrett Wong was there and Bob Picardo and Terry Farrell was there and it was it was a great lineup for Boston It's the last convention. They actually did in Boston. So it's probably our fault. <laughs> and um, I, You know, it just it was like we never lost touch you know, It was like we we had been in the same room together the entire time and not missed it that decade So sitting there I was thinking well, it, I was listening to a lot of podcasts at the time I'm like, you know, this works as a podcast so I brought it up to Dan and Dan's reaction was, what's a podcast? And, yeah, I don't want to do that. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I uh, I will admit I was uh, very um, unfamiliar with podcasting at that point. Um, didn't know a lot about it. And I'm like i'm supposed to be talking you know and it's strange that i i initially said i didn't want it i actually went to school for broadcasting back in the day and at one point um in my hometown had a radio show for a little while a little bit different than podcasting but for some reason i'm like i have no idea why that would be something that would work not knowing that there are so many amazing podcasts out there for so many different genres So, so uh over time um I think I softened to the idea. It took a little while, I think, Bill, before we finally decided to to really go ahead and, and and make the move to do that first episode. Trek Boss was in the summer and we didn't start our first episode until January of 2015.
2: Right. Yeah, it um well in there was was planning. I mean I had to figure out how to do this. You know, we we I don't want to say I did it on a budget, but we tried to do this, you know, as as free as possible. And, you know, I I have a a decent microphone and Dan at the time did not, um, (laughs) not that I'm throwing stones. Um, but you know, and then it was, well, how do we distribute such a thing? And, you know, well, what do we need to support this thing? And, you know, we figured social media. So there was a lot of pre-planning that we just sort of figured out along the way, because at that point we didn't really know anybody in the podcasting space. And then one week I just said, Hey, so let's give this a try. And he goes, uh, uh, I, I don't know, dude. And I said, no. Well, the worst that happens is we we never release it. He goes, oh, okay. And that was episode one, right? Fantastic. Which Bill
3: Fantastic. Bill likes to fondly call the hostage tape, which kind of rings true, I think a little.
1: But like I said before, and we were doing this off air. I mean, I'm really looking forward to having you guys kind of revisit that because there are things that start the podcasts. There are mission statements. There are reasons why you want to do this. And one of the things that I think that you have mentioned over the course of your tenure of these 100 episodes is that you are doing it from the filter of two friends sharing a 20-year Star Trek fandom experience together. So is that something that you always put at the forefront when you're generating your content? Has that changed over time? Are you starting to expand all of the different types of of experiences now that you've had with each other because it starts with this great idea, but it ends up building upon itself where now you two, you two are the voices now for so many other people becoming friends through Star Trek because of through your friendship of Star Trek. So how do you feel about that? How has that evolved?
2: It's, um, it has always been the lens through which I framed the podcast, um, you know, Dan likes to joke around and call me the executive producer. And I suppose <laughs> it's true in large degree. I mean, I, I, I came up with the format. I came up with, you know, how we were going to produce the show. I came up with, you know, the segment breakdown and that evolved over time. And pretty much the whole thing has kind of been, you know, hey, let's try this. And he goes, okay, whatever you want to do. So uh, it has always been through the lens of our friendship because we always laugh. You know, there are plenty of podcasts out there with, with, two friends or two, you know, people who know each other that talk about Star Trek. And I think I I don't want to sound overly self-important, but I think the thing that separates our podcast from them is that those other shows don't have us. You know, I crack up when Dan and I talk about anything, you know, it doesn't have to be Star Trek. We chat constantly all day long, you know, online. And I, I laugh genuinely every single day because of my best friend. And that's, that's what makes Trek geeks work in my opinion.
3: Yeah. I have to agree with that. I guess I can put it very simply. If Bill and I were not, did not have the friendship that we had and, but we were two people who were just doing a podcast together. I wouldn't want to do it. It's as simple as that without that friendship, I do still love Star Trek. It just wouldn't be the same, and I wouldn't have the interest. I look forward every week to putting my headset on, turning my mic on, whether it's a good mic or a bad night mic, and <laughs> and having the discussions. Because I'll tell you what, if you heard some of the stuff that we don't actually get to put in the recording, it, it's it's just it's you you can't even hear what we're saying because we're laughing so much, and that's that's the important thing. And I think Bill and I have both said it publicly: once it's not fun anymore, we're not going to want to do it. But it's always fun. So it's going to last
2: forever.
1: And see, folks, with the, uh, you can hear this, this show is kind of devoid of laughter right now. That's my fault. (laughs) because because you're (laughs) wholly
2: unfunny norm
1: i am i i brought so much seriousness and gravitas to this show that it's really kind of taken them off of their format we're off of a little bit kilter here that's
2: what happens when you deal with a you
1: know with a big league podcaster like norman Lau. that's all i'm saying this is what happens when the romulans come into town (laughs) it's not fun anymore this is business now (laughs) that's right so as as you've grown Throughout the podcasts, your friendship has obviously grown together. You have done probably more things together in the last few years than the 10-year span, obviously, where you were apart from each other. Were you always fans of Star Trek, even while you were apart? Or has Star Trek made your friendship grow and become that much stronger?
3: Yeah, um, very, very simple yes to that question. I have been a Star Trek fan since I was a young, probably pre-teen, um and it just grew. I think the I think when I really started enjoying it was um when the first motion picture came out in the seventies. I didn't like it at first because my brother always got to watch what he wanted and he wanted to watch Star Trek and I wanted to watch Gilligan's Island or the Brady Bunch or something like that. Um so the T V episodes I didn't really care for, or I or was always complaining about it until the movies came out and then I started really getting into it and that evolved exponentially um as I grew up um And it only became stronger and stronger and when Bill and I met and were working at the same company for a while when we first became friends, it was through Star Trek that we actually started having discussions and getting to know each other and 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 realizing that we were coming becoming good friends and Then within that time frame that we were not in contact with each other, nothing happened with Star Trek; It just became more and more important. Mm-hmm.
2: yeah, I agree with that um i've been a fan probably since I was about six years old when Star Trek, uh, the original series, was in syndication, you know, hitting its heyday. And, um, you know, like Dan, it was it was about my big brother and I. And, you know, he wanted to watch Star Trek and I wanted to watch Six Million Dollar Man. And he always won because he was the older brother. And he took me to a matinee of the motion picture in 79. And we both fell asleep. And that's a, a memory I've carried with me ever since. And, you know, it's Star Trek has always been a part of my life. That I can remember I mean I I can't imagine a time or remember a time when there wasn't trek involved and the fact that I get to share it now with you know uh, with you know a a brother that I've adopted through the years on this podcast means the world to me it truly does. Thanks,
3: man. I I would also want to uh, chime in in regards we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast. I know we're going to talk about it probably a little bit more during the year. But Trek holds a very, very, very special place in my heart, not just because I love it so much and it's kept the friendship with Bill and I going. But I can literally say without any hesitation, without any exaggeration, that Star Trek saved my life. I went through a very, very dark period um, in the late 90s and very early 2000s. And I can say unequivocally, if it was not for Deep Space Nine being on television one night, I had a barrel of a gun in my mouth and I was ready to just finish it. I had everything all taken care of, all prepared. It was that episode of Captive Pursuit on Deep Space Nine that was playing that night. And that changed everything for me. And I was able to find that escape that I needed so bad during that dark time through Star Trek. Gene's universe saved my life. And that is one reason why it is such an important part of my life.
1: Well, thank you for sharing that with all the listeners, Dan. I mean, that is um, that is a singularly profound moment for you. And we all have those moments in Star Trek where we're, we're watching something. And it makes sense. There are people out there that are struggling through life. They find something about this universe, whether it's the original series or the next generation or Deep Space Nine in your case, Dan, or Enterprise or the new movies or the original cast movies. There's something about Star Trek that still, after all this time, with all of the episodes and with all of the movies that have been created, even the new movies, where somebody can find that one point where they can say humanity is going somewhere more positive than where we are now. And it's that moment where we have to believe that if we can just hold on a little bit longer and promote that positivity a little bit more, we can be a part of that movement. And I think that when it comes to podcasting, When you two decided to join forces and say, hey, you know what? In this sea, in this great milieu of all these different subjects, not just in podcasting, but in Star Trek podcasting, how did you feel about trying to find the voice that's going to cut through and try and connect with that one listener where you can pass that along to make a difference in their life? What do you think it is about your format that allows you to do that, to reach out to them?
2: I, I, at first, I don't know that I thought that something like that would ever happen. You know, there, we hear from people all the time that, you know, our show is, is an essential listen for them. It, it, it bolsters their fandom. It, it, it teaches them to, to reappreciate Star Trek again. And that's kind of overwhelming because I, I don't know about you, Dan, but I never, ever thought that somebody would come to us and say that because frankly, we're just, two idiots in new england talking about star trek i mean if if you boil it down to you know to its most you know common element it's two guys who laugh at their own jokes and talk about star trek but it's with passion and it's from the heart and i think that i think that that's really what uh, helps people find their love of Star Trek again. Right. Because, you know, there's there's some nostalgia there. There's some, you know, uh, well, there's always a a value in meeting people like yourself and who, who love the same things that you do and love them the way that you do. And I think that's one of the reasons why Star Trek Las Vegas is so key to, to my fandom, for example. You know, I get to meet people all the time who love this thing the same way that I do. And, you know, I, I come away from it renewed. And I, I I, think, I hope, I hope that's what Trek Geeks does on some level for somebody. And we're just fortunate enough to hear from people every now and then that that it does. And that gives me an, an overwhelming sense of, of gratitude. It really does.
3: I agree. I think that's what's important about what we do is I said it a few minutes ago, if we were just sitting here talking blandly about, you know, inverse tachyon fields or, or positronic nets, this, that, and the other thing, and facts and figures about Star Trek, who would, who would, I, I don't know if I would want to sit and listen to that all the time, but we have a very unique relationship in that. uh And I think that shows through the airwaves, so to speak. Um, I think people can grasp onto that. And I think that people can sit there and go, wow, they really have a passion Um. It's, it's kind of hard to describe, I think, Noah. Hmm.
2: You know, it's funny because I think back to the first two pieces of feedback we ever received on Trek Geeks. And they are burned into my memory and, and I will carry them with me for the rest of my days. The first one was, um, you guys need to be more like Mission Log because they're a great podcast. <laughs> that was the very first piece of feedback we ever received. The second piece of feedback we ever received was essentially, and I haven't come this one in memory, but I remember it in spirit and tone, was essentially you guys are annoying. You laugh at your own jokes, and I really can't listen to you anymore. And I said to myself, okay, that person doesn't get it. I'm sorry they didn't enjoy the show, but this is what the show is. I mean, there are times where we're juvenile, I'm not going to lie, but it's fun. You know, If I get to throw out of your face at Dan you know, it's, it makes my night. It really does. <laughs> and it's puerile and it's childish, but that's who we are. We like to have fun and, you know, we, we could be serious, you know, we could do this a hundred different ways and not laugh at all. And I don't think people would enjoy it as much.
3: Young at heart, I think is a good term to use norm and mm. bill. That's what we are. That's and not just here. I think both of us are uh, in, in real life, and I think it's, I think it's a very integral and important aspect of what we do every week uh, on the podcast. There's no re, Star Trek makes you feel young at heart. It makes me feel young at heart, and I'm sure it does for millions of other people. And to be able to express that and for people to listen to it and appreciate it and like what they hear is the biggest compliment I could ever get in my life.
1: Do you guys remember or has there been an, A meeting with a fan that you've met at a convention that has been really, really, really momentous to you, something that has said, you know what, sometimes I don't want to do the podcast, sometimes I just want to give it up, sometimes I just like, yeah, it's just too much work, because it is. I don't know if people out there really understand how hard it is to do a weekly podcast. It's a very difficult thing to write the script, to do the production, to do the editing, to get it out on a weekly basis, because it's a product that we want to give to all of our fans. But there are those times, there are those moments where like, you know what? That moment is all worth it. Did you guys have that moment?
3: Yeah, uh, there was a moment. Unfortunately, I, I usually have all this information in front of me. There was a gentleman who came up to us at Star Trek Vegas this past year. We were in the uh, in the dealer's room near the giant um, display that they had for the makeup that they did this year. And we were standing there. We were talking with uh, Ken Ray from Mission Log, actually, speak of the Mission Logs. Um, And a gentleman came up and he just stood off to the side and waited for us to finish. And he came over and introduced himself and said that he loved the show. He listened to it all the time and he was wondering if he could do, if we could do him a favor. And we said, Oh God, yeah, sure. What? We went over to a table and he pulled this, he pulled something out of his backpack and he opened it up. And it was an old, gosh, Bill, what was it? 1970 something. uh, It was a, it was a Trek. It was like a Trek fan magazine. uh, Yeah, like a newsletter. Newsletter. And he opened it up and there were autographs all over it of the original cast members and next generation people. And he said, I love your podcast, guys. I listen to it every week. I want you to autograph this for us before me. And and we were like stunned. I don't think we really thought it was serious. And they were literally he said, these two spots are right here for you. And it was right in the top of the of the newsletter that for me uh was the oh, my gosh, this is real moment. I think
2: I, I can tell you exactly who it is, and I can tell you where he lives because I have it committed to memory. His name is Tom Durr, and he's from outside Houston, Texas. Texas, I knew was and Texas. he's he's a fantastic guy, and it has provided the one of the single best moments in producing Trek geeks. Um, to say we were overwhelmed, you know, is is an understatement, and it's probably one of the greatest honors I could ever have received as a fan. Because, you know, I don't necessarily think of myself as a podcaster or somebody with an audience, because first and foremost, I'm, I'm a fan, even though I am those other things. Mm-hmm.
1: So there's something special that I wanted to kind of pivot to. And I think it's something that it's a hallmark of, of this particular celebration that we're talking about, this 100th anniversary. The two of you, well, let's, let's, let's be fair about it. Let's be honest about it. Trekkix is now a brand. In the Star yeah. Trek community, yes? It is. And you have great merchandise. You know, you have uh, these great logoed shirts and t-shirts that everyone loves wearing. You have hashtag Trek Tuesday. We see that online. We see that on Facebook and Camp Kitterman, which is fantastic. I think a lot of people love, you know, they, they get into the spirit of it and they show off their Trek fandom. And a lot of it has to do with the Trek geek stuff that they're wearing. But there is something that is going to change for Trek geeks. And that's something that you will be unveiling soon. Would you guys like to talk about that?
2: Yeah, I'll I'll take this if you want, Dan. Yeah, absolutely. Um,
3: I'm just I'm looking at it right now, kinda of drooling a little bit. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um Yeah, the, the album cover art for Trek Geeks has changed. I, I admit to having rudimentary Photoshop skills at best. And they are slightly better than Dan's, um, which is not saying much because mine are really <laughs> bad. Uh, And some time ago, I want to say this past fall, I reached out to Aaron Harvey from Trek FM, who hosts a, a great podcast called Saturday Morning Trek, and in addition to being Trek FM's art director, and I said, hey, Aaron, what do you think about designing us our own unique delta for the podcast? And he liked the idea, and so we talked, and I gave him a couple of ideas, and then eventually he came back with a design that was nothing Like I imagined and it was light years better than what I could have hoped So with this episode of trek geeks, we debut the official trek geeks delta Um on the album cover and you you probably see it at this point if you go to itunes too with our new album cover art But uh, it's something we're really excited about because it, it I think it helps us stand Apart but also stand on our own two feet in a way you know, we're not relying necessarily on you know, the, the classic Delta, like we did in our artwork for a while, we've reached that zone where it's like, okay, you know, let's, let's take this out for a spin and let's, let's declare ourselves as, as different and bold. And that's really kind of what the, the best way to describe the Delta, I think.
3: Yeah. I was, uh, the morning that Bill sent me the, uh, uh, the new, uh, logo, I was like, that is like, I can't say it because I'll have to bleep it out, but it was that amazing <laughs> And I'm like, it's nothing like what we discussed. It's so much better. And that doesn't take anything away from the design that Bill had originally yeah. come up with because that was phenomenal what he had. And we're never going to tell you what it was. But um, <laughs> this new one is just so much at a higher level than what we could have expected. And selfishly, it's going to be our unique logo. And it's going to be the thing that I am going to be so proud to display everywhere. Um, I'm proud to display the Starfleet Delta everywhere right now, but there's going to be something about that that's going to make it even more special, I think, for Bill and I.
2: I, I have a Starfleet Delta tattooed on my body. And I'm already thinking of a way to get this tattooed on my body. I was telling Aaron the other day. First off, we have to thank Aaron, you know, from the bottom of our hearts. He delivered something that, that is just it's gorgeous. And it's never been our goal to make money from Trek Geeks. It never will be our goal to make money from Trek Geeks. If we, you know, happen to um, sell a few shirts to help support the podcast, which is uh, all we ever have shirts on our cafe press store for, then so be it. But believe me, this is not a money-making enterprise. You know, we're not raking in the cash. Oh, over here. I, I saw what you
1: did there. <laughs> I know. Right. But right. on
2: bumps. Yeah. yeah. But, um, you know, anything that, that we make off, you know, shirts now goes right back into producing the podcast. So, uh, and that's the way it will be with, with this too. Eventually after I get back from my cruise, <laughs> spoiler alert, I'm taking a cruise next week. Uh. Um, You know, right? Um, we'll, we'll launch a Red Bubble store with, you know, with shirts with the new Delta, which will be great too.
3: Yeah. One of the things I wanted to, uh, point out about the Delta, which has its own very specific piece of memorabilia, I guess you could say. For those who are very, very in tune with, with Star Trek, you'll notice that in the Delta, first of all, for me, it, it kind of is both nostalgic and looking into the future because it's got a kind of a little bit about, uh, It's got a little bit of a discovery look to it with the the different layers of the Delta, but also that little logo that's in the Delta is actually the official Starfleet communications logo from Star Trek The Motion Picture. And I thought for Aaron to put that in there, it just meant the world to me. I thought it was fantastic.
2: It's a total deep cut, and I love it. And it's it's what, you know, just push that delta over the top. Yep. It's brilliant and it's bold. You've seen it, Norm. Yes, I have. Um, it's, it, I think it's gorgeous. And I think that that little communication symbol icon is really just what, what really emphasizes the geek and Trek geek.
3: Yep.
1: Well, I mean, both of you have significant Star Trek tattoos that mean the world to you. I know, Bill, you have Boldly Go. And I know, Dan, you have that lovely Defiant that's on. Thank you. you. know, that's that's been done in the last, what, few years those were done?
3: I got that done. And uh, Bill had his done, uh, what, a year and a half ago, Bill?
2: Yeah, my Star Trek pinup—I got it uh, actually a year ago.
3: Yeah, and I got my Defiant um, Deep Space Nine tribute tattoo in Vegas last year, so I've had it for less than a year now.
1: So when you choose something like that, Dan, obviously Deep Space Nine is profoundly meaningful for you. Mm-hmm. But Bill, I'm still kind of on the fence of where you are with with your with kind of like the hierarchy of where you are with Star Trek.
2: So, uh, yeah, yeah, um, Deep Space Nine has has become my favorite. Um, it means a great deal to me. I I think partly because of the relationship between Benjamin Sisko and his son, I think it's the most beautiful relationship in star Trek and it's the only non-dysfunctional family relationship in all five live action series. Mm -hmm. Um, TOS is a very close second because it's what I cut my teeth on. I mean, I love, I love captain Kirk. Captain Kirk was my boyhood hero. And as you'll hear in, in this episode today, the enterprise was my boyhood ship of dreams and my safe place. So, um, you know it's it says a lot for deep space 9 to to vault to the number 1 position but after that it's usually next gen and then enterprise and then voyager in that hierarchy for me
1: so i'm i'm heartbroken that i won't be able to be with you guys in star trek las vegas you know come this fall because i'm going to yeah. be on my own trip mm-hmm. but what are you looking forward to to doing achieving seeing meeting when you're there because You have a large fan base now, and we're entering the 30th anniversary of Star Trek The Next Generation as a celebration. So last year was the 50th. This year is the 30th. We're coming on these huge anniversary milestones. Is there something that you really just want to have happen while you're there? Or I know you guys have both been there many, many times, and there has to be something that really has to capture the audience's attention and mass because if I may, on social media, and social media is not the best place to try and gauge the pulse of f- real true fandom, but it seems like every single time some type of just even meaningless piece of information that comes out in the Star Trek community is met with yeah. some interesting dynamics, you yeah. know, some negativity, some some vitriol. Why do you think that is? And do you think that you two being there and being able to talk to your fans will be able to just kind of like help, you know, change the tide in some people's attitudes.
3: Well, I I think for me this is actually going to only be my third visit to Vegas. Uh, surprisingly, um, uh, third consecutive. For me, you the most important aspect of Vegas is getting together with all the friends that we've made over the course of this journey. Because I had never been to Vegas before we started the podcast, and to be able to. Meet up with the people that we've already met in Vegas and meet up with the people who we haven't met, but have become friends with on Facebook and on Twitter. That's what I look forward to mostly. I don't want to take anything away from what's going on with the anniversaries with the 50th last year and the 30th this year, but that's my main focus. It'll be great to sit in the audience and watch some of the panels, but it's going to be even better to be hanging out with people without Norm, unfortunately. Um, but, um, it, it really is, that really is what makes it so unbelievably special for me.
2: You know, Norm, I got to tell you, the only reason I was able to drag Dan's ass to Las Vegas that first year was because he wanted to golf with Vic Mignogna and not because he wanted to share the experience of his first Star Trek convention in Vegas with me. (laughs) Priorities. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) That's 100% true. That's 100% true. You know, um, there are an incredibly loud minority Hmm. within Star Trek fandom. And... They are the type that will just, you know, have negative comments about anything, no matter what it is. It could be a revelation that, you know what, the next series is going to take place after TNG, and it's going to star, I don't know, so-and-so. It's going to star Jonathan Frakes as as Riker, and he's going to have the Titan. And people would still find a way to get down upon it because it's not what they perceive Star Trek should be at, at this juncture. Or it doesn't fit with their idea of what their fandom is. And uh, they're gatekeeper fans. And, you know, it's, I, we try not to let it get us down because we just get excited about right. everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, not as excited as Jim Morehouse, mind you, but excited about everything it has to do with Star Trek because we love it all. I mean, yeah, Voyager may be my you know, my, my series that's ranked last, but it doesn't mean I won't watch it. It doesn't mean I don't enjoy it. You know, it's uh, we we try to provide a, a haven from some of that negativity because, you know, at, at the end of the day, we're all fans. And can't we just all love this thing? Regardless of what brought people into the tent, we're here because we love Trek. And that's really what matters.
3: We yeah. won't we won't bring that negativity to the show either. It's something that we refuse to do because there's no reason for it. A, a small, but very perfect example of, of what you were talking about. Norm is it just happened this week. Sonequa's character has been uh named. Her first name is going to be Michael and the internet went nuts. And mm-hmm. it's just something that I don't understand. I D I C people. That's what I always go back to. And it amazes me that fans of a show that is so open in that I D I C can be so close-minded opinionated hateful and try to bring down the masses with some of the things we say and we won't let it happen to bill or i or to trekkies
1: and i think that's that's absolutely where i was getting at because as a long-time star trek fan myself and someone who likes to promote positivity in my own podcast i mean sure there are certain things that we all don't agree on it's a, it's okay to disagree but when it comes to star trek and I just put a, a, a Twitter post out on this. Is that how the kids say it nowadays? Twitter post? Tweet? <laughs> I think it's called cool. a tweet, Grandpa. The, tweet. <laughs> the kids, I put out this Twitter post out there. <laughs> well, I said that sometimes when I read what's happening in Star Trek today, I don't understand if Star Trek fans today understand what Star Trek means anymore. Mm-hmm. Is that an actual, and, and we could save this for a different show. You guys can use this uh, completely. Uh, this is a Star Trek norms idea, TM. Uh, this is <laughs> but this is something that's very concerning with the overall fandom because at one point in time Star Trek was about promoting this universal peace to promote equality amongst every single living being and to understand where everyone's coming from to be you know inclusionary not exclusionary but to harp on every single thing like uh, you know Rain Wilson coming in as Harry Mudd people mm-hmm. freaked out you know uh, Michael why is why why is our our first officer's name Michael these are so uh, well, you'll probably have to edit this out, so I'll I'll, I'll, I'll truncate this. You're pick pl- you're picking the fly s out of pepper. Yeah, really. Yes, yeah. You right? really are. And you're not, and, and you're missing kind of Star Trek IV its its larger point. I'm just trying to figure out why that's happening with a show that's always promoted a certain thing, and people keep saying like I'm a real Trekkie, I'm a real fan, but then again, these hard walls start coming up, and you're like, how can you say that?
3: I've got. Uh, I have a possible answer to that. Of course, I know I'm not. all I'm usually always right, but I'm not all the time, right, Bill?
2: Uh, not yeah. according to Michelle Spect. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I don't think. I, I blame social media, Norm. I really do. Without social media, the people don't have these sometimes anonymous ways to bring forth these, um, these you know, negative comments or things that are trying to be disruptive. We didn't see this. Type of thing happened to this degree, I don't think, before the Facebooks and the Twitters and 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 all that stuff. So, I think it's a it's a product of technology, actually, and how we've advanced. And social media is uh, one of those, unf- it's one of the unfortunate side effects of social media, in my opinion.
2: You know, social media, and this is an analogy I know that you know all too well, Norm, is a dual edged sword. You know, it's, there's a great aspect to it in which, you know, we can promote this podcast and, and people can find it. But by the same token, it's also the method by which people can anonymously snipe at things that they don't like simply because they don't like them. Mm -hmm. So we we try to focus on what makes Star Trek great. And that's the stories and the people and the human element, you know, because there's something to celebrate in every iteration, I think. Yeah,
1: Well, let me, the way that I've seen it, and maybe you guys want to expound on this later on, in the 1960s when, well, let's, mean, you know, let's be fair, 1966, when the original series came out, you're looking at a future that many in that generation thought we would never achieve or never be able to reach. The space yeah. race, being able to go out into space, being able to use this technology to be able to bring communication between everyone on this planet Earth together. But now we've achieved that. Now we've been able to actually make good on what happened in 1966. Do you think that there's a disillusionment in the overall fan base where, you know what, Star Trek really isn't that special anymore? You know, what are the tenets of Star Trek if it's not promoting technology to bring humanity together? Because we've already done that, talking about social media. Or going out into space. Well, SpaceX and Elon Musk have landed successfully uh, the last few of their return rockets onto a spaceship. So we're there almost. So what about Star Trek now is special anymore, where people are like, you know what, I'll buy into that. I'll buy into that. Humanity itself is going to be able to reconcile its differences and be able to work together to be able to get out into space. Are we kind of doing that in a way where Star Trek isn't
2: needed as much as it was anymore? I still think it's it's needed. You know, I, I think that You know, Star Trek approaches the future from a a place of incredible optimism. And I think that that's, you know, what we lack in our our normal everyday discourse today. And I think that the byproduct is, you know, people don't apply that to their fandom. Um, I, I'm at a loss to explain, you know, why people, you know, don't see that that happens with Star Trek. Uh, maybe it's the franchise nature of Star Trek now, you know, where, okay, well, we'll get a new series or we'll get a new movie. Maybe it's, uh, I don't want to say they're clones, but, you know, maybe some of that, that uniqueness and that, that originality has, has dulled for some people as iterations of Star Trek have carried on. But personally, for me, I, I think that's one of the reasons I love Star Trek Continue so much uh, as a tangent, because it's helped me rediscover that positivity and that hope. So I I, I think, uh, for me, I, I think it's just the way the discourse in this country is, where everything is just so polarized, that unfortunately it affects fandom now too.
3: Yeah, I would agree with a lot of what Bill said. One of the things for me, from a, from a kind of a physical uh, aspect of Star Trek, and Bill mentioned it a little bit, one of the things that brings me greatest joy with any of the series that have taken place since the original series. Is when they reference things that took place during the original series or when Voyager mentions the Starship Enterprise, which they did on last night's episode that I was watching. It brings me back to when I was younger and when I, when I started becoming a fan and, and that means a lot to me. So I look at that aspect of it. It means a lot, but also one of the taglines for the motion picture was the human adventure is just beginning. One of the things that I remember, I don't, I don't remember seeing a lot of interviews with Gene Roddenberg, but one that I've always remembered is he's sitting in front of this god-awful, paint-splashed-looking backdrop, talking about how his vision for the future is one of hope and one of optimism and one that people have put aside their differences. That's what I think is still important to Star Trek. Not so much the technology. If we get the technology to go out to other planets and do all these things, yeah, that's great. But the core of Star Trek will always be those humanity stories and how we have continued to better ourselves in the 23rd, in the 24th centuries. And that's the core part that means the most to me.
1: I mean, Bill, you've mentioned it. and Dan, you just mentioned it. And it's something that's very near and dear to my heart is the original series. But – With everything that's happening in fandom today, we have a lot of these great fan projects that are happening. And for all of us, I think that all of us agree that Star Trek Continues is probably for us something that really touches deep and resonates deeply with us because it emulates what we believe the original series was about. And every single episode that Vic and Michelle and the team puts out there... I don't know how they do it without having the most profound understanding of what it really means, not just to themselves as fans, but to the fans in general, to bring back this this positivity, this, this entrepreneurial aspect of this is how humanity is supposed to move forward and to take ownership of creating a better future for our race and the races that are associated with the United Federation of Planets. Now, with Star Trek continues, there is something that we're going to talk about very soon that is very incredibly special to both of you, and there's an audio documentary that you have created for a very significant trip. This trip, and and let me know if I'm overreaching. This trip is probably one of those life changing moments for the both of you. Absolutely. Yes.
2: Yeah. Without a doubt. So,
1: I'm sorry, Bill. Go
2: ahead. No, I was. Uh, I was gonna say, I, 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 I think Dan will agree with this. You know, it's. I make this reference in the audio documentary um, that you'll hear. You know, later on, it's. It's kind of like the first time a little kid walks into church. You know, when you're met by that, you know, this this gigantic space which is meant to make you feel small and to intimidate you, and. The first time you step into the corridors of the Starship Enterprise, it's very much the same feeling. There is, it does feel intimidating because this is something you've loved your whole life, and you finally get to reach out and touch it. Mm-hmm. It's tactile. You know, there, there's, there's something real to it. It's tangible. And it's, it's a moment that I will take with me forever, quite frankly.
3: Yeah, there are, there are no real words to describe what that feeling is the first time that we saw that bridge lit up and working we weren't on a set we it, we weren't we were not mm-hmm. on a set we were there we were we were sitting on the bridge um i i kind of i kind of um compare it to and it's not as is not as big possibly as what bill just talked about but when you're a little kid being from new england and growing up in new england the first visit to fenway park yeah. that is a tradition that every every youngster in new england i think needs to experience it is a it is an amazing moment you walk up the stairs And you see this field that you've, you know, grown to love, even if you've only just a little kid, you know, in, in your eight, 10 year range. It's a moment that people don't forget. This is exponentially higher than that first trip to Fenway for me. Um, it is one of the top moments in my life in terms of experience and, and just sheer awe and appreciation.
1: And you were given the cook's tour in a way.
3: Yes.
4: <laughs> I think that was yeah, an that, easy thing to that make,
1: But did that make the experience a little bit more special? Because there there's the tour and then there's the there's the uh the velvet rope tour. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and we got a little bit of both, as people will hear. I mean, we, we had one tour and um with our, our dear friend Casey Shafsky, the unit production manager for Star Trek continues um on that episode. And um when Vic found out Um, we had to take another tour because the captain gives the best tour.
3: Yeah.
2: And um, that in itself, both tours were amazing. You know, the first time walking through the sets with Casey was, uh, was, was incredible. You know, it's, it was the culmination of so many things I dreamed about as a boy. And that second tour was really the icing on the cake. When we saw the bridge, you know, get lit up for the first time that day, it was a, to say goosebumps is stereotypical, but, and and cliched perhaps, but it's, it's the God's honest truth. It really is. Would you mind if I shared a personal
1: story with you right now? Sure. Please. So I brought my best friend, Todd, and you met him, tall, blonde guy. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Who yeah. Uh, Who is uh, in love with impersonating Cap- uh, Commodore Decker. <laughs> so during the course of last year's Star Trek Las Vegas convention, you know, he was just inundated with star after star and you know, celebrity after celebrity and things that he's just never seen before. But this is the God's honest truth. We were walking through the main corridor, like back towards Quarks because you know we were drinking as as we do. And he turned the corner and he just froze in place. And he grabbed me by the shoulder and he pointed in the direction of somebody. He goes, Oh my God, dude. I go, What? Who is it? Who is it? He goes, That's Vic. From <laughs> Star Trek continues. I go, Yeah, it is and that's michelle i go yeah it is <laughs> and that to him he even told me this he goes that was my greatest moment at the star trek convention because todd is an original series fan through and through yeah what vic and the star trek continues team have been able to do for the original series fans is is almost indescribable and i exactly. think that's that's what you were getting at with with going on this tour uh Lolani, for me, I think is singly one of the best the original series episodes ever made. Mm-hmm. I don't even consider that outside of the realm of canon because it is exactly what the original series was meant to do. So, yeah, <laughs> I just I was so completely shocked because he usually never gets star tra- Starstruck. <laughs>
2: <And> <laughs> it's easy it, to do.
1: Yeah. And then Vic came up and, you know, Michelle came up and we all took pictures together. And then, you know, it was just You know, he left the next day, but I'm so glad he had that moment. And I'm glad that Vic can do that for the original series fans out there and fans of Star Trek, because, you know, with what he's doing with, you know, his production and then obviously the Star Trek museum that has been open to the public in Ticonderoga, James Cawley's museum. That gives people firsthand access to Mm -hmm. why this is so important to all of us. What does it mean? Why in the lexicon of all of fandom does this mean so so uh, deeply and profoundly to all of us fans because we want to relive something in our lives that is quintessentially pure, that is untouchable in our own soul. And that's something that's undescribable in the realm of fandom until you actually can either have that moment for yourself or share that moment, which is what you both had together. So I'd like to I'd like to introduce the the documentary here and the trip to the final frontier is one that Trekkies everywhere wish they could make to touch a piece of their fandom and make it real. Bill and Dan thought they were just going to see the Starship Enterprise, but they soon discovered this pilgrimage to rural Georgia would be so much more. Please join us now as they take A Journey to Future's Past.
2: Most stories start at the beginning, but this one starts at the very middle of our trip. After our first day on set at Star Trek Continues, we were invited to dine with the cast and crew at an unnamed restaurant chain steakhouse. Upon our arrival, we saw 30 to 40 people laughing and telling stories. They were all friends and all committed to making this series the best it could be. When the meal concluded and we were all making our way back to various hotels, Vic Bignana came up to us to say goodbye. He was headed out of town for a few days for a prior commitment. He shook my hand and thanked us so much for being there. In reply, I said to him, You know, Vic, back when you were on the podcast, I made this statement, and being here now, I can tell you without hyperbole, that's more true than I thought possible. This is not a project of vanity. This is a beautiful thing you've created where all of these people come together and create this show that we all love so much. And I can't thank you enough for allowing us to be here for just a couple of days. I could tell that hearing those words meant a lot to him. He thanked me and then said the following. Please tell that story. Let people know what we're all doing here. I I want people to know, the more we thought about it, the more we realized that Vic was right. Star Trek Continues is so much more than just the actors who play the iconic characters that we've loved for so long. We immediately thought that the best thing we could do in telling this story was not only to talk about what we saw, but, and probably more important, who we met and the stories of those individuals who come together for a few weeks a year to bring these stories to life. They are an amazing collection of people, and their work here will stand the test of time. We thought our journey was to walk the corridors of the Starship Enterprise, and it wound up being so very much more. We arrived as observers, and 48 hours later, we left as friends. We can think of no better way to honor those new friendships than to tell the story that we were asked to. A story of community, of family, and of synchronicity. It's a story that begins, of all places, on a golf course in Las Vegas, Nevada. A Journey to Future's Past. Beaming aboard Star Trek Continues, Part One, the 100th episode of the Trek Geeks podcast.
5: Lazarus, I've been thinking You're always on my mind Lazarus, you've been looking And I've been hard to find Lazarus, the solution
3: Let's use the Guardian forever to go back in time a bit. It was May of 2015, and we had the pleasure of welcoming Vic on the podcast for the first time. At the end of our discussion, the conversation turned towards the convention in Vegas. And I wasn't actually planning on attending. Initially, I had always planned that my first Vegas convention would be the big one, the 50th in 2016. Anyway, Bill goes on a ramble in great detail about the history of his trips to Vegas every year for the convention and the night golf with his friends, which had become a tradition, and Vic is just loving every minute of it. So Bill says, hey man, why don't you just join us for a round of golf? Yeah, I'm sure everyone can imagine how I felt when Vic said, oh, that'd be great, let's plan on it. Yeah, my hero, Vic the Captain Minana, was going to be playing golf with my best friend in Vegas during the Star Trek convention. Well, I couldn't have that, so I frantically did my research, talked to Bill's lovely wife, Kelly, and after getting the okay from my lovely bride, Susan, surprised Bill on the next episode of the podcast that I would be joining him in Vegas for a week of fun and, oh yeah, golf with Vic. So as the weeks until August arrival went by at a snail's pace, we both kept in touch with Vic and made the plans to really play golf while we were out in the desert. I really don't think it was going to be happening. I didn't believe it was going to be happening until it was actually happening. You know, there's always possible changes of plans, so I didn't want to get my hopes up too much. And that first bout of panic actually hit me earlier in the afternoon that day when my phone rang while I was in the vendor's room looking at merchandise. The phone number wasn't one I recognized, but I figured since we were in Vegas, you know, it's probably not a good idea to let anything pass unanswered. So I, I answered the phone, and man, I am glad I did. It was Vic, the Vic, Mr. Mignana, calling me on my phone. At first, I thought, uh oh, here we go. But Vic simply wanted to push out golf for about an hour, so that was cool. Whew. Fast forward to that evening. Of course, this is nighttime golf. Bill Mumpf and I were at the Rio awaiting the arrival of Vic in the lobby so that we could head out to the golf course, and we were actually joking as to what he'd be wearing, and I casually mentioned that it would certainly be Star Trek related. So sure enough, about 10 minutes later, we see him walking towards us with a huge smile on his face, carrying several golf clubs in hand, and wearing a black TOS t-shirt with the TOS letters in the colors of the uniforms. I really was excited to be doing this, and I I knew it was going to be a fun night when he said he wished he remembered to bring cigars for all of us for the round. I actually had the privilege of riding with Vic in the cart, and, well, to be honest, Bill or Mumpf would have had to shoot me and bury me in the desert in order to to sit there instead of me. And it, it really was an unforgettable experience for both good and bad reasons. You know, as the host for someone Bill and I consider a true VIP... We wanted everything to be just perfect. You know, sometimes things are a little bit out of our control. You know, small things like, oh, I don't know, the golf cart that Vic and I are using are using breaking down on the 7th hole or somewhere there about maybe. You know, let me set the scene. It's fairly late in the evening. It's dark except for the lights on the course and the Vegas strip off in the background. And the cart just dies right there next to the green. Boom, dead. Nothing. Nada. We try everything. Nothing's happening. Nothing's working. Completely dead. Sweat is starting to beat up on my forehead because I am thoroughly embarrassed that this is happening. You know, We ended up calling the, quote, clubhouse and got some dillweed on the line who wanted us to jog back to the front of the course and get a new cart. Yeah, that's not happening, pal. No way. You know, we were pretty adamant to them that they needed to send a replacement cart out to us Right away, So we sat and shot the breeze for a little while with Vic while this delay was occurring. We joked around, made fun of the cart that died on us, and we also got to know each other a little bit, which was really cool. One of the coolest aspects of this evening, and of this particular discussion, was that it was just between guys who were Star Trek fans. It wasn't fans talking to one of the stars that we admired so much, and that really helped set my mind at ease. So as we saw the two carts coming up the path, we unhooked our clubs from the dead cart and transferred them to the new one while the course employees tied a rope around the dead cart to tow it off, hopefully, to its final resting place. Let me uh, actually share one aspect of Vic with all of you. If there were ever a person who would be the perfect candidate to become a cybernetic hybrid, not a Borg, it would be Vic binyana because his cell phone is literally an extension of his hand. He is constantly getting texts. And I mean constantly. He has an uncanny ability to be reading and answering texts and stay focused on the conversation at hand. And that was really impressive. It just shows how busy he is all the time. I was also, you know, I got to say, I was impressed with his golf game. You know, it was a true contest between he and I. I think there were two other dudes with us, but I don't really remember. You know, and that contest went down right to the very last hole when I fell apart like a wet paper bag. Yeah. Uh, yeah some say I never had a chance. Some say it was never as close as I make it sound. You know, but Vic and I know, and I think I think he was scared. Yeah. Uh, You know, it's clear that he's a competitor like I am, and it came right down to the wire. You know, he had his strategy, though, and it worked perfectly. During the round, we started talking about Star Trek Continues and what it meant to Bill and I, and how it continued the legacy of TOS. You know, it's really cool hearing his perspective of STC also. You know, the passion in his voice when talking about it is literal. It's palpable. So we discussed, I actually brought up the fact that I would love it if Bill and I could sometime go down to the set during filming, and then we could do a podcast on the experience. He actually actually loved that idea and said that you know he'd put us in touch with his go-to guy, Casey. Uh, what? What? So I think that's where the point in my game just really, literally went to hell. I was just so excited about the possibility that we were going to go visit the set that I couldn't concentrate on anything else anymore. So... For anyone who may ever play golf With Mr. Mignana, The captain of the USS Enterprise Let me give you a very Very important piece of advice Never And I mean never Hit a putt short Because you will never hear the end of it from the captain And he may Throw in a couple of colorful metaphors To describe your lack In strength of said putt Believe me I know Chapter 2, The Journey Soon after STLV, we received an email from Casey Shafsky, the unit production manager, and it all came into place. Casey has a lot on his plate for these shoots. The guy is literally the glue that holds it all together when everyone goes to Georgia to film an episode, so pretty much what he says goes. Well, unless Vic has anything to say about something. He really is one of a kind, and one of the best things about this trip was getting to know him and become his friend. Bill and I shared a couple of introductory emails with him, and he advised us of the dates and schedules for our visit. As we were new to being with the group, he felt it would be important that we be staying at a different location than the cast and crew, which was totally understandable. The good thing about Kingsland is that all the hotels are pretty much right next to each other anyway, so we were able to make reservations very easily. Casey advised us that we would be able to visit the set for two full days of shooting, which we were completely ecstatic about, and that, of course, everything was top secret and not to be discussed with anyone before, during, and after our visit. Before we knew it, November was upon us, and we were getting ready for the trip of a lifetime. But oh, how frustrating that trip turned out to be. The first leg of the trip was really uneventful. I stayed at my sister's in Nashua the night before and then drove to pick Bill up at his house on the way to the airport in Manchester, New Hampshire for our 1 p.m. flight to Baltimore. The flight was uneventful. But then in Baltimore, when we were sitting waiting to board our connecting flight, those dreaded words came over the speakers. Ladies and gentlemen, for those of you waiting to board flight 425 to Jacksonville, the aircraft is experiencing a maintenance problem, and at this time, the flight will be delayed great. I'm a worrywart. A lot of people know it, and Bill certainly does. I always have to ask him the smallest details and make sure that they look okay with the album covers that I work on. So I'm always worrying about the worst-case scenario, and the delay in Baltimore was certainly no exception. What if we get stuck here overnight? What if we are unable to get to the studio on time? What if we have to cancel? And I'm sure Bill was quite ready to kill me. But luckily, the delay was only about three hours. Uh, They had an extra plane at the gate because Baltimore is a hub for Southwest Airlines. So I kept Casey updated as often as I could, but since it was going to be close to 10 before we arrived in Kingsland, we made the decision to just meet at the studio the next morning instead of trying to meet up for a late dinner. We arrived in Jacksonville, got our luggage, picked up our rental car, and drove up to Kingsland, Georgia. It had been raining most of that afternoon, and it was very humid, so the drive was very difficult because the window was really fogged up, and the wipers were practically non-existent. But we made it. We arrived at our hotel and unpacked and got settled in for what was sure to be a long and exciting couple of days. A little bit of backstory. Every time I go to Walt Disney World with my family, we have some unique phrase that we use constantly throughout the trip. Even though this trip was with Bill and not my real family, quote-unquote, this trip was no different. Every night after the lights went out and every morning when waking up, I would start singing as Aaron Neville. Look at this man. And I don't think Bill and I have laughed so hard as when that would happen. Imagine going to bed, no noise for a good 15 minutes, and then me singing out loud, Look at this man. Yeah, it never got old. Look at this man was definitely the phrase for our STC visit.
2: Chapter 3 Beaming Aboard As one might expect, we didn't sleep much the night before and it had nothing to do with Dan's Aaron Neville impersonations. There was a lot of nervous anticipation and energy and we might have felt like young kids waiting to race downstairs on Christmas morning to see what Santa had brought. It's really no exaggeration to say we were ready for the day hours in advance. Now I'll admit it, I was antsy. I had no idea what to wear. I must have gone back and forth between various Trek geek shirts. And then, when Dan picked the same one, I decided we probably shouldn't look like twins. So I changed. I checked the gear repeatedly, and and then I checked it again. I checked my backpack repeatedly, and then I checked that again. I made sure I had audio cables, and charging cables, and car keys, and Advil, and every possible thing that I might want or need. It's like I was packing for an expedition into the unknown, and in a way, I suppose I was in a sense. With that abundance of time, we decided to stop and get some breakfast, and it wasn't long before we discovered there was a Cracker Barrel in the area, and well, when Hash Brown Casserole calls you, you you pick up the phone and you say hello. That's all I'm saying. Now, every other Cracker Barrel in the country I've been to has been one of the busiest places on the planet. Well, not this Cracker Barrel. We'd hope to be able to eat up some time and not get to the studio too early, but we found the one restaurant in this chain that nobody appears to go to. We made up two thirds of the customers in this restaurant that day, and we had our food in less than ten minutes after ordering. We just took this as a sign and figured we'd get to the studio early. Butterflies be damned. Okay, you ready? I'm ready. Let's go find this place. Oh my god. Let's
3: see what's on the radio first.
2: <laughs> Look
3: at this man.
2: <laughs> Alright. I don't really know what to expect. Well. You know, I mean it's it's like we get to we get to do something that so few people get to do. And we're we've been invited, yep. you know. Yep. But still, uh-huh. That doesn't make it any less nerve-wracking,
3: right? Right.
2: Because I don't want to be that guy, right? Oh my God! Because usually you are. <laughs> uh, to some extent, I suppose that's true.
6: <laughs> it's a,
3: uh,
2: it's a kind of a gray day. It's very gray. It's not as warm as it was when we came in last night. Yeah. But uh, the sun's shining in my mind, though. <laughs> <laughs> It just, it's it's going to be really incredible and weird and bizarre the moment we step foot near those sets. My god. Oh my god. I mean, I don't even know if we're going to be able to to have free reign and walk down corridors. Yeah. Or, or anything like that. Yep. But, just
3: another thing, how many of the places all throughout the country have the corridors or have all the different sets? I mean, we
2: know that there's a few sets here and there of the bridge, but... These guys got, like, the shit, man. So, okay, so we're driving down this road, and we're in we're in rural Georgia to some extent. I would say that is a good description. Uh, here's a guy who looks like he's wearing a cape. Yeah. No, There's a store, it's called Box, of all places. <laughs> Box, yeah, Damon Box. Damon
4: Box. Damon well, Box. Definitely the store. right
2: place. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, we look like we're driving through, you know, your average, you know... Um, small town outside of uh, some large place yeah this is not where I would expect no a Star Trek studio and you gotta wonder when the people who
3: originally started working on these sets they picked that for this area for a specific reason that they wanted to be unassuming and they didn't want people to know where it was or did it have something to do with something else well it was originally the
2: the Farragut studio set yeah and they did an amazing amount of work. They did. I mean, a lot of what's freestanding there now yep. was started by them. And, you know, they get all the credit in the world for laying the groundwork. And then, you know, Vic has mentioned to us that they've made improvements and, and created some new stuff. And mm-hmm. I can't wait to see what that's like. I this I don't know if this is the main thoroughfare through this town or not but there's already some Christmas decorations on some of the light poles. Yeah. And it still looks like your average street in, in your off. average small town. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or New Hampshire.
3: Yeah. It is... Uh, it's interesting. I think we're uh, we're coming up on the one-mile marker to go. We... Uh... <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, well, this looks like another kind of... Okay. i got to describe where we're at. Have you ever seen... The old old movies were... A good example is Thor. Everybody, you know, people who've listened to the podcast have probably seen Thor. You know that old New Mexican town that they're in near the end? And it's just like an old Main Street. It looks like a modern
2: Western town. Yeah. This Main Street looks like that. It really... <laughs> it does. There's it's a lot of smaller businesses. Yeah. It, um... You know, it looks smaller than, like, say, Laconia, New Hampshire. Yeah. Um... There's a there's a dent and windshield repair place that has its business details hand painted on the outside of the building. <laughs> like in Sharpie. <laughs> yeah, that's really what it kind of looks like. There's a small used car lot. There's a a small knickknack shop. There's a, a restaurant that looks you know fairly special with French cuisine, which seems out of place. There's railroad tracks which seem to run all through this oh community. Oh my gosh, Yeah, everywhere. Yep. And we're going over those Oh. oh, oh, oh very nice memorial uh, right there. Yeah. Various veterans memorial. Tomorrow's Veterans Day. Uh, I think it's this one. You can turn here. Yeah, yeah. it's not. It. We right. didn't turn this. I don't know. Yeah. 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 We. I think we yeah, can get this there. Is, yeah. I think. I don't
3: think is what, it matters. This is what the which
2: GPS it, is saying. So this is what I'm taking. All right. <laughs> I don't think it matters which of these turns we take, as long as we take yeah. the next. Yeah. One correctly. This looks like some typical southern wow. landscape it's with like the a, trees like hanging a, over uh, the road. We are in the middle of nowhere.
3: Yeah, that's a good way to put it. But a half an hour away is somewhere. All right, so according to the GPS, it's straight ahead. And Is that a lot? No. What is that? I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's That's a different sign. Are
2: we sure it's down here? I don't know. we have the right address? According to this, we do. Okay. Alright. Oh,
3: I bet it's that building. What the hell? <laughs> it looks big enough. It does look big enough. It's definitely unassuming. Wow. Oh, this is totally got to be it. Yeah, it's all the cars. Okay, what? Wow. <laughs> okay, watch out for the mud. Yeah, see, so we could go <laughs> we could go mudding. <laughs> Let's right. go mudding down here. My goodness. Ugh. Oh, look at the puppy. There's a German Shepherd up over the hill there. Look at that. They left us a spot right in the front. <laughs>
2: That's because we're at VIPs.
3: Okay. All right, we're here. We are here. Wherever here is. I hope this is it, because if not, we're probably dead. <laughs> <laughs> Kingsland, Georgia is the 12th largest city in the state of Georgia, going by landmass. Not far from the Okefenokee National Wildlife Refuge, what most of us would call a swamp, it's just over the state line shared by Florida and is bisected by Interstate 95. It's not far from the naval submarine base Kings Bay, the home of the U.S. Navy's fleet of nuclear-fueled Trident missile submarines. The irony of this fact, in particular, is not lost to either of us. The city has a population of about 16,000 and hosts an annual Labor Day Catfish Festival. Its historic commercial district was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1994. On either side of the highway, Kingsland is littered with hotels and chain restaurants providing a home port to those traveling the Atlantic Coast Interstate or visiting the area surrounding the subbase. It's probably the last place one would expect to find the final frontier. Arriving at the studio was really kind of odd. When we say it's in the middle of nowhere, we are not kidding. It is in the middle of nowhere. Once you get outside of the area surrounding the interstate, Kingsland truly is a stereotypical rural American town. You're driving through what looks like a residential neighborhood, and before you know it, there it is, in a building that no one would ever expect to be a studio, let alone a place where they make Star Trek. Star Trek. Truth be told, we almost weren't sure we were even in the right place. Pulling into the parking lot's large, muddy area, we were greeted by a wonderful welcome committee. The studio neighbor's dogs, two adorable German shepherds named Hope and Faith. They were probably more relieved that there were no aliens invading their territory again, which we have seen in pics with Todd Haberkorn in full makeup. A quick sniff and wag of their tail, and they were off to their big dirt pile to watch over their kingdom once again. Our first humanoid contact was with our pen pal, Casey Shafsky. He was bringing out some garbage uh, out of the studio when we drove up, and he walked us into the studio, and immediately Bill and I felt at home. It was... normal. And it was... inviting.
2: Now, we mentioned a bit ago that this facility was an unlikely studio. Half of it used to be a garage of sorts, and the other half of the building used to be a church. When you cross the threshold of the door, you're met by two things: the episode posters from the current tenants and a Bible verse from the previous ones. 2 Corinthians 5:7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. It seems slightly out of place, but yet it doesn't, especially given the faith that Star Trek fans have put in the volunteers who congregate here to create stories that so many have come to love. Casey brought us down a short hallway into a large room filled with tables and chairs, which was pretty much the area that everyone gathered in when they weren't shooting or working on the episode. That's the first thing I noticed. There were no separate dressing rooms for the stars, let alone trailers. Everyone hung out here together. Everyone was on equal footing, regardless of their job in the production. We immediately got the sense that this wasn't going to be an egocentric experience in any way. Adjacent to the common area is an office, but it's not an office in the truest sense. It's an empty room with someone's laptop on a table. There are no frills or office furniture and certainly no brand new carpeting. It's a usable space where people can accomplish tasks. Just through the office is makeup. No cameras are allowed in, and since it's not a huge space, the only people in there are those being made up and the people performing their magic to affect the transformation people like Star Trek Continues producer and makeup supervisor, Lisa Hansel. It's a role she shares with her husband, Tim Vidito. Whether it's making up Tellarites, Orions, Vulcans, or even humans, their creations look as though they stepped right out of the original Star Trek. The time they spend here at STC, like that of many other people here, is their vacation. That's right, Tim, Lisa, and the others... Take time they would normally spend on vacation and spend it in rural Georgia, creating Star Trek simply because they love it. Odds are, if you've interacted with STC on social media, then you've probably interacted with Lisa. In her element, she's pretty focused, and I'm almost afraid to say this, maybe even a little intimidating. That could be because I know she's a second-degree black belt. (laughs) In my conversation, though, she is the exact opposite. And it didn't take long for Lisa to become one of my absolute favorite people on the planet. Recreating the look of such an iconic series is a huge challenge. I asked her about that, as well as how she got her start in the industry.
7: Um, Actually, it started at a Star Trek convention. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Interestingly enough, I attended the um, Las Vegas Star Trek convention in uh, 2005. And I was going to cosplay to Paul. Oh wow! And my friends had told me that I resembled to Paul, and I had this uh, costume made up and everything. I had these really funky ears, and no idea how I was going to put them on. <laughs> I was thinking double stick tape. Uh, I I really had no idea. And someone said, "Hey, there's this guy in the vendors room who's doing special effects makeup. Go, you know, go talk to him. Get them put on." And sure enough, I found this guy um doing just that and set up an appointment to get my ears and eyebrows done and uh fast forward five or six years we're married <laughs> that's awesome so yes uh it was a match made in star trek that
2: that is the best, the best story, story ever <laughs>
7: Right, <laughs> I, lo- I love it when people ask me how I met my husband because <laughs> I get to tell that story. You, um, you're probably one of the
2: few nerds yeah, and, that can actually say you found love at a Star Trek convention. I just want to point that out.
7: <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. So yeah, um, he so he was into it, of course, and I started assisting him and just kind of fell on board. And we run Impact Effects, uh, which is our our business, and. I became more proficient in the beauty makeup, the humans, as well as the aliens. And that made us more marketable. And I've just been doing it ever since.
2: That's awesome. So what's the biggest challenge you have in recreating the look of the original series then?
7: That's really challenging because, um, as you know, the original series was shot on film. And everything we do is HD and digital. And even though there's a certain film grain and judder added in post-production to make our episodes appear more like the original series, it's still HD. So trying to recreate that old pancake style makeup look from the late 60s and still have it not just completely detract from the story in HD is a real fine line to walk, definitely.
2: I can only imagine, you know, I remember watching the original series and you always see the soft focus when it went to, you know, women or close-ups of of women in Star Trek. And you guys don't do that specifically, but you do have a makeup that looks pretty flawless on the screen, especially in HD, and I never really thought about that before.
7: Yeah, yeah, it definitely is a a fine line. Sorry, that was my... (laughs) Trekky phone <laughs> notification <laughs> that nerd. happens
2: to dan uh, all the time don't uh, worry about it
7: um <laughs> it so, happens it happens on set all the time <laughs> everyone's phone has exactly those notifications and we never know whose phone's going
2: off. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome
7: sorry I no it's regrets. okay <laughs> uh, so um,
2: you know so obviously yeah. you know your phone is set to you know star trek notification tones how did your fandom start then
7: I was a little kid running home after school to watch Star Trek every day. I had two older brothers who knew that they might lose fingers if they tried to turn the channel. (laughs) I was just absolutely, completely immersed in this show and um, all the values that it represented, the the action, the adventure, and just the, the morality plays really, really spoke to me at that age. And I just have loved it ever since.
2: Well, it's really kind of interesting because for, for Dan and me, both of our, you know, entry into fandom involves our brothers. And it's interesting to hear that yours do too. And in, it, it seems to be a recurring theme that it, there's always family of some sort. And so far, it's been fathers or brothers. I find that fascinating.
7: Yeah, my brothers weren't really into it. They just knew I was, and that that was my time. (laughs) They got their football, they got whatever it is they wanted, but this was my time.
2: (laughs) So here, you know, Vic seems to have organized an amazing group of people, both in front of the camera and behind the scenes, and everybody has a different entry point into this project. So how did he bring you on board?
7: Um, interestingly enough, I was putting pointed ear tips on Tim Russ, turning him into Tuvok, <laughs> for for um, the original Kickstarter for the Renegades project. Yeah, years and years ago, wow, five years ago, and uh, he showed up with Larry Nemechek, um, and came in, introduced himself, and then proceeded to just kind of help. <laughs> like Vic does, he just kind of helps, you know, Oh, here, let me do that. Let me yeah. do that. And so he instantly became part of the shoot. And, um, I, I, when I shook his hand, I got makeup all over his shirt accidentally <laughs> and he asked me for a wipe or something to fix it, to clean his shirt up. And I, Oh gosh, I'm so sorry. And then he asked me for a card, a uh, business card. And, the next day he called me and set up a meeting with me and, and my husband Tim at Marie Calendars in Glendale and <laughs> just started telling us about this this amazing project that he had in mind that he really wanted to do. And bear in mind, this is Hollywood, so everybody's got an amazing amazing project. Everybody's right. got an idea. Everybody's excited about it. So you go in kind of leery and you're just you're trying to see all the tales and look in their eyes. And there was just something about him and his passion for this that was so magnetic um, and contagious. And of course, being a, a Star Trek fan, I, I pretty much bought it hook, hook line and sinker. <laughs> and I'm so glad I did. <laughs> Uh, we were uh, instantly signed on. Well, not instantly. We we went home, talked about it for all of five minutes, <laughs> and <laughs> called him back and said, yep, we're in. So we came on after the first three vignettes were done, and we uh, were on from Pilgrim of Eternity, our first episode, to up to today.
2: I hear that um, scheduling everybody is a, a particularly huge challenge.
7: Oh, my gosh. It <laughs> really, really is. It really is. Uh, James Kerwin, uh, director, producer, does the schedule for the whole shoot before we ever get there. But the day-to-day call sheets are are done by me generally just because I know the flow of what it's going to take to get people into and out of makeup on time. I'm given, okay, we want our, to get our first shot off at 10 a.m., these are our actors. Here's who we need first. What does that look like? And then I go off by myself and work it all out. And call sheets go out about an hour later.
2: I, I can't even imagine. I mean, seeing everybody here, it looks like it's the best organized chaos I've ever seen in my life. You know, it's That's
7: an excellent description.
2: Yeah, and, and nobody's panicking. <laughs> Nobody is That's freaking out. At do. least, at least outwardly.
7: Yeah. <laughs> that's true it's because we love each other and we love what we do so much that we're in Disneyland it's a lot of work but we we wouldn't be anywhere else we would not choose to be anywhere else so
2: speaking of freaking out Todd is running late due to flight delays and yeah isn't necessarily going to be here when anyone thought he was going to be here so What does that do to your time frame in making him go from Todd to Spock?
7: Well, it also happens to be his first day on set. So that's an extra challenge because he arrives fully human. (laughs) That (laughs) means he needs a haircut.
2: Oh, right.
7: Um, You know, once we get the day one Spock out of the way, it usually takes about two and a half hours. Roughly, but day one Spock can take three to three and a half hours. So having him not be on time to the tune of several hours late just means that it's it's shuffle time. What can we shoot without him? Who do we get in, in makeup now so that they can be shot and while we're waiting for, for Todd to arrive and get him into makeup. You know, we just make it work. <laughs> Improvise, <laughs> adapt, and overcome as Gunny Highway says.
2: Oh no <laughs> doubt. No doubt. <laughs> After a quick walk through the office and putting our jackets and equipment in the corner, Casey asked if we were ready for the tour. Now, normally, he said, Vic likes to do the tour, but he was welcoming a VIP to the set, so Casey was offering to do it for him. More about that particular VIP in a minute or two. Besides, he said, you can have Vic show you around later too. I'm sure he'll want to see your reactions to everything. This was it. We were about to walk onto the Starship Enterprise. And personally, I was nervous and giddy as hell. On our way to set, we stopped through Wardrobe, where we finally got to meet two individuals who had been online friends for quite a while, Ginger and Hannah. Ginger Holly is the Wardrobe supervisor and costume designer for Continues, and Hannah Baruki is the set costumer. If somebody wears it on screen, they've had a hand in making sure it looks perfect, Being introduced to them for the first time felt like a bit of a reunion, even though we'd really never met. We'd seen their work and their friendship on social media for some time, and we'd felt like we'd known them for ages. We wanted to get their behind-the-scenes look on being part of such an amazing production. Now, due to the busy schedules the two of them had, we couldn't get them at the same time to talk about their experience. But it's really amazing how similar their love and dedication is regarding what they do for the show. First, we spoke with Ginger, and we asked her what she does with STC and how she got started doing it.
8: So basically, as far as what I do here, I'm the costume designer for the show, um, and I'm also the wardrobe supervisor. Typically, on a larger set or, or you know, a union set, that's two completely separate jobs. Um, <laughs> what it means for me in real-world application is that I am full-time for the production year-round. Um, give or take a couple of months every spring, usually, that we have a little downtime in between scripts. But uh, I design all the new looks for any character coming in that's never been seen in canon before. I also do the pattern drafting and the recon, you know, the construction of looks that were matching from previous episodes, like you saw in Fairest of Them All yes. the mirror episode. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done a lot of pieces like that. Um, Divided We Stand, you know, the... Kirk Green Wrap was a custom piece that we made that I, um, you know, drafted, constructed, custom dyed, all of those kinds of things. Everything we make pretty much is in house. So I have one or two staff that help me year round. um, A few people that help me during pre-production, but the rest of it is is mostly all me from my house (laughs) in in Florida, and then bring drive everything up in the car, cram it all in the car, and hope it fits and drive it up a couple times a year and um so that's the the costume designer side is doing the designing doing the patterning um um sketches if Vic wants something new sketching it out sitting down with him talking to him and James those kind of things and then the supervisor side is you know on set um I'm in charge of all the throughout the year budgeting pre-production budget sourcing ordering things online getting all the materials in staffing hiring and firing um on set Monitoring, you know, watching the monitor, making sure quality control, everything, and assigning jobs to the staff. So, it's it's a lot. It's a it's a big. So basically, you
3: don't have a lot to do when you're. No, it's so boring.
8: Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) so boring. I I just play video games all day. um, Yeah. You
3: you um you mentioned Ferris of the Mall, and I know that there's a a little behind the scenes footage um, that people can see in regards to one of the outfits or, or or one of the pieces that went on the outfit and the entire process that you guys went through to get it to look exactly like it did from the original series. Can you give us a little bit of insight into that?
8: Sure. Yeah. I believe that was covered in um, uh, Condé Nast sent out a team and they did a, a small documentary. So that's on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, the making of that is on the Wired channel, I believe, on YouTube. Um, and th- there was a small feature on the wardrobe in those videos. I think that's what you're talking about. But, yes, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a big reset. Um, I had only been ever on set for a couple of days. Uh, on Lolani, I came up to just sort of help as an assistant. And then um, in between Lolani and Ferris, which was only a few months later, the filming of Ferris was just a few months after Lolani, uh, I ended up being in charge of that episode. And it was my first time. Be in charge of anything, really? <laughs> 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 you know, nope And it was—it's was such an iconic episode to replicate. So you know, no pressure right. or anything like that. But um, we, yeah, the there were several pieces in that episode that were difficult. The entire costume inventory had to be made over from scratch because it was a reset from season three back to season two, which was all velour uniforms versus the season three nylon. So, oh, in wow. addition to making the new pieces, like the mirror, mirror, mirror. Kirk gold vest and the Spock jacket um, and Marlena Moreau. And, you know, in in addition to recreating those looks, we also had to remake everything that was on all the extras, anything that was on any background, you know, everything was the wrong fabric. So we remade basically our entire stock from scratch just for that single episode. And we've never used any of it since. Wow. Uh, but we, you know, details are important <laughs> to us. So... Um, it was a big undertaking, yeah. The the one that probably sticks out the most, it's still actually one of my favorite pieces to, to date, is that gold Kirk vest. Um, mm-hmm. I had been looking for a fabric that we could use for that for ages. And it sort of turned into our own private episode of History Detectives because we were trying to figure out what it was made out of originally. And um, what I learned that was my first sort of foray into the sourcing world of Star Trek. And in the fandom, obviously there are a lot of people that are your go-to people for certain items. Um, so we borrowed a lot of the pieces for that episode, a lot of the medals and pins and medallions and like random, you know, weirdly shaped award pieces Mm -hmm. that are on the, uh, different various, even Scotty and the Sulu star and like all the things that were on the uniforms. Uh, borrowed a lot of those from our our good friend Roger Romage, who has excellent quality reproduction stuff um but but it but nobody could help me with the fabric so it took <laughs> us it took me a long time. I looked everywhere I feel like I literally looked everywhere. I had people look in all the six major fashion cities, so you know Vic went shopping in l a and I went shopping in Atlanta, and a friend of mine went shopping in new york and um, another friend of mine went shopping in Vancouver, and I went shopping in dallas and we couldn 't find anything even wow. remotely right anywhere and I live in Tampa, Florida, which is not too far from orlando and one day i had, I had looked i 'd been looking on eBay for months and it just wasn 't there it wasn 't there and I got home one night and I had just left Orlando. We had had a convention, and I had just left Orlando that morning, and I got home and I went on eBay just almost out of habit, like not even really looking at the screen and typed in, you know, gold, stretch, something, something, you know, whatever I thought might work. Um, and it popped up, and it was in Orlando. And I I sent oh, um, I sent Vic the link, and he said, can you go there? And I was like, well, I was just there this morning. But, yeah, so we ended up going back. Um, I took a friend of mine with me. We went, and we met this lady in the middle of a parking lot that was in between a Michael's and a Joanne's. So it was like the most back alley fabric, parking lot, fabric deal of all time. And um, and it was perfect. And she said that she had gotten it from a theater company that had gone out of business, um, I believe in the 70s, that had sold all their production roles. The company was in New York, but that the role when they had it was 20 years old. So the fabric was oh, a 50-year-old wow. vintage fabric. And the reason that it hadn't existed anywhere until just that minute was because she only had seven yards left out of a 1,000-yard roll that she had been selling for years overseas oh, wow. um, in like 500-yard, you know, like 100, 200, 500-yard segments. So she, she had mm-hmm. been selling it to Japan, and right at the last second, like right when I was about to run out of time, she had seven yards left, so she just threw it on eBay and it was perfect for us, so it worked out. But it was, it was. Um, Vic likes to say that uh, you know some people don't believe in providence, but we always feel like the show <laughs> was supposed to get made, and that's one yes. of the things. That's only one of probably a billion examples of times <laughs> when I just felt like the universe was like, okay, I'll hand you this one. You right. Know? <laughs> so,
3: I, did, I just, I, I can't get out of my head the image of of you in between a Joanne's and a and a, <laughs> I think you said a Michael's. Like, yeah. hey. Psst, hey. You need some fabric over here. I just—it's—it's um, it's worked out pretty well. <laughs> yeah,
8: we absolutely said that to each other and laughed really hard about it. So it <laughs> happened. It happened. It was wow. too easy of a joke now to make. So, well,
3: yeah. as everybody has said, I mean the the perfection on the uniforms and and all of the set pieces is just so great with Star Trek continues. But you've told us you started with Lolani and and now you've, you're of course working on Episode Six and Seven, which were which we're at the set for now, but. How did you get involved in Star Trek Continues? How did it come, come, come to you, so to speak?
6: Well,
8: um, it was kind of a combination of timing. Again, just things working out well. Um, I, my first career, I was a zookeeper, actually. I have a degree in zoo animal technology and um, a minor in journalism and uh, animal behavioral sciences. And I was a zookeeper for a long time. Ironically, uh, my first job when I graduated zoo school was in Yulee, Florida, which is right near the set. Um, so I lived there 10 years ago, and then you know, being on set all the time, I feel like I circled back around, and now I live there again uh, for a completely different career. But um, I went back to school for fashion design because I had become a cosplayer. I had been um, friends with a lot of people that were into cosplay and they started dragging me to conventions and I started making costumes for Renaissance fairs and conventions and I just really loved it. And, um, I ended up having to stop zookeeping for various, uh, reasons. And I ended up in being a vet tech for a long time and it just wasn't for me. I didn't, uh, the job was great, but just the inflexibility, the schedule, like I'm a very natural creative and I just got super claustrophobic and I was like, I can't keep doing this. And so I went back Mm -hmm. to school for fashion design and I just decided to go for it. And in the meantime, um, I did not know Vic. I did not know he existed. I didn't know anything about him. Um, I had a few friends that were really into anime that kind of got me watching some of the shows and I was at conventions all the time. I found out later that I was at conventions for like, five or six years that he was at that I just never knew he existed. I I didn't even know he was there. Um, And so way later, you know, we finally brushed up against, you know, met each other. And it was because he was at a convention. He was talking about the show and he was talking about that Pilgrim of Eternity was about to come out. And um, right at that time I needed an internship for school and I didn't want to do apparel I wanted to do film. Um, I was passionate about storytelling, and I could tell that he was passionate about storytelling. And so I just emailed him. Uh, <laughs> he has a public email. <laughs> you can just email him. So I just went online and found, like looked up his contact info, and I dropped him an email. And I basically just said, "Hey, um, I'm in fashion school. Here's a bunch of my work samples. You know, I sew. Do you need any help? I need to give somebody 150 hours of free labor." <laughs> And, um, he, 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 I didn't know it was going to turn into, you know, like four years of free labor, but <laughs> <laughs> it's been totally worth it. Um, yes. yeah. So, so I came on Leilani as an assistant, uh, just for a few days. And then shortly after that, uh, it was actually the day that I graduated school was, was the day he called to ask me to come on. Um, oh, wow. so I kind of jumped in pretty quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. I had only met him a few months prior for the first time, so. Pretty quickly. Facebook told me that that was four years ago last week. So <laughs> wow. thanks, Facebook. Time that's, hop for me uh, So yeah, so it's been four years just, just now.
3: It's great to see uh, all of these stories of all the people that we've talked to of how they came into this family because that's what it is. Yeah. And that's one of the things that Bill and I have, have have noticed is that it is a family. There's no egos here. It is just people there to do something that they love and to give the fans something to continue to love. Uh, and it's really, really, it really shows. Um, we've been watching what's been going on as we've been uh, on the set. Um, and there's mm-hmm. already a lot of cool memories that we have, but for you, since you've been working on it for a while, um, I'm going to pick your brain a little bit. And I'd kind of like to know what your favorite memory has been in all of the time that you've been working on STC from Lolani up here to episode seven.
8: Well, it's impossible obviously to pick just one thing. Um we we have things, even the episodes, you know, like I I have multiple favorite episodes even because of different reasons. So like mm-hmm. while Fairest of Them All is not my personal favorite story that we've told, it's my favorite that of the work that I've done because I, it was my it was only me on that one mm-hmm. and yeah. it, I, it's like it was my baby. So, you know, we have different reasons for different things to be different kinds of favorite. Um, <laughs> but I would say that the the overwhelming, it goes back to what you said about it being a family. It really is. Um, I think that if you ask anyone, their favorite memory is never going to be a specific scene or a specific episode or a specific, you know, week or premiere or convention date or something. It's always going to be like, Really dumb little things, <laughs> um, like just just the way, because we really are a family. It, you know, we like to get together. It's just like when your family gets together a couple times a year, and like some of them drive you crazy, but you still love them, and some of them like you just miss them so much. But you know, like everybody gets along. Everybody's there to do one thing, and um, th- the things that are my favorite are just being around the group. And um, yes very tiny things like Hannah and I actually were joking the other day that if we put a tenth amount of the effort into the actual show that we put into messing with each other in between like (laughs) while we're filming the show (laughs) that amazingly somehow it could probably actually even be better than (laughs) because we just love to you know we love to have a good time together and um I know Vic says a lot that you know a lot of sets you can either have a good time and not get anything done or you can get everything done and not have a good time we really do manage to do both um it's very difficult but the things that are my favorite things are like the inside jokes that the camera team writes on the slate every time they reset for a take or you know like just stupid tiny little things that happen all day throughout the day every day that make us all laugh and you know, you stop at the end of the day and you think, like, I love them. Like, <laughs> like they're the best. Um, but as far as, like, a concrete thing, I will I will give you an answer, especially, you know, you're, you're here now um, for six and seven. Our new crowning jewel, of course, is engineering. And um, oh. one of my ultimate favorite things ever is always being here in between shoots. And we spend a lot of time. I'm one of the fortunate people that's local enough that as mm-hmm. we're building these things and as we're – you know, getting ready for these things that I'm able to come up and be here. And um, right. I put it this way. I signed up for a Best Western Rewards card at <laughs> at the beginning of the year. And I went platinum in like the first <laughs> two. I, I, I had to sit down and tally all the nights. And it was something like I've spent something like 80 nights here this year built, helping. Oh, wow. With, with, um, yeah, helping with engineering and get everything built and just watching it go from nothing to something this amazing has been such an experience. Getting to spend time with, you know, all the, with Brandon and Royal and Will and Vic and everybody that comes down to work on it. Um, We really do put, you know, a lot of ourselves into the, into the yeah. building and it really feels like home. So just being here in general, like throughout the year, even if it's not for a shoot. It is probably those are probably some of my favorite memories.
2: We also asked Hannah how she got started with STC, as well as what she does during the filming of an episode.
6: I got involved back at the very beginning. I was I was lucky enough to be there for uh, the Pilgrim shoot and, and all the way you know up until now. Um, I had known Vic for several years through conventions. At that point, um, I I'd been going to anime conventions and and, uh, and whatnot, and uh, I actually I remembered um, the other day that he used to call me and my friends the Star Trek girls because basically no one at anime conventions cosplayed Star Trek there at that point. <laughs> so <laughs> so yeah we. Um, I would known him for a while and he asked uh, a couple of us to come and be extras on Pilgrim. And I, uh, I ended up being working as a production assistant um, in addition to being extra. And, uh, and now I'm here. So my job now is as the uh, set dresser. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I, work in wardrobe and um, I help with construction and um, just uh, assisting our amazing designer, essentially.
3: <laughs> nice. As we know, um, all of the wardrobe that you guys do is, is pretty much made from scratch. If I, if I recall correctly, yeah. and the attention to detail that you guys have on these uniforms is unlike anything I've ever seen. Uh, we recently spoke with Ginger. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also a, a little, um, uh, blurb of, of this in one of the uh, productions that I've seen online where you talk about the detail for, the mirror universe episodes and Kirk's, <laughs> uh, Kirk's tunic in particular. Oh what well, can gosh, you tell yeah. us
4: about that?
6: Yeah. Uh, the the mirror episode was such a huge episode um, for wardrobe because uh, Ginger had to flip the entire, like everything, anything that you see on screen had to be brand new because we weren't in the prime universe anymore. So she, um, she did a lot of sourcing. There was a ton of construction and, um, and putting together, I think like, God, like 20 or 30 whole looks for that episode. It was amazing. And then, um, as far as we can tell the actual fabric that she made, um, Kirk's vest and, and the, the stunt to Nick with was as far as we could tell. So I don't know if this is a hundred percent true, but it was from like the original bolt of, uh, of the same exact stuff. So yeah, it's, it's a very, very gorgeous episode. Um, a
3: huge one for wardrobe for sure. That's, that's really something. It, and it, sh- it shows so great. The, like I said, the attention to detail just in the metals and, and, and like you said, the fabric, that's kind of amazing that the fabric is now what 48 years old or so. Uh-huh. And it's still around and still in, in a condition that it can actually be used. That's kind of cool yeah. too. I'm not a big wardrobe person. I don't know much about it, but, um, I would think that it would break down or something like that after so many years, but it sure looks great on screen.
6: Oh yeah, for sure. And it's like a, it's a metal weave. So, I mean, it's, it was a very special fabric. I think she got that one. Um, she found someone who said they had it online and then uh, like met them in a parking lot somewhere. So it, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're lucky it all came together. <laughs> yeah.
3: Now as, as Bill and I have been on set or, or behind the scenes watching things, just being in awe of the, of the cohesion that all of you, All of you guys have in-between takes, during takes. What is your primary responsibility that takes place when the shoots are happening? Mm -hmm. Um, Because there's a lot of activity going on. And in-between takes, there's a lot of people running around. Um, Why don't you let our listeners know exactly what it is that you do when an episode is actually being filmed?
6: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so what I do is um we dress in and dress out people for the day, so we make sure that all the costumes stay in good repair, that everything's ready to go. Um, you know, all of that stuff to make sure that people can to get on set and then so that they can change at the end of the day. Um, And then when I'm on, actually on set behind the monitor, um my job is to just stand at the monitor and make sure that anything that the camera is catching, that I've got my eye on. So any costume that's there that I'm, I'm making sure that it looks the way it's supposed to look. Mm
3: -hmm. It's funny. uh, There's been a couple of times and I'm sure, I'm sure this is something that you see a thousand times, but since we're just there watching is, is the straightening of Vic's uniform (laughs) or O'Hora's. And, and then you're up there with like little uh, rollers or something like that. That's another, another thing with attention to detail that, just amazes me. And, and I have to ask, I'm not sure if you've been involved in other productions, is that attention to detail and what you do specifically and what everybody else does also, is that just unique to STC because of the passion that you guys have, or is that something that you would see pretty much on anything?
6: I, I think there's definitely a level of, of passion <laughs> with this project that, that probably doesn't exist. Um, at least not everywhere. Uh, we actually, we have a name for that, uh, that tug that tunic tug we call that the the trek tug so if um if we're ever about to roll and i see like a bunch of people who need to just adjust their uniform i'll just call out from behind the monitor and be like all right trek tug (laughs) 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 because it's like the same thing they're so tight and um and and they're always moving around so Mm -hmm. yeah it's It's funny that you mentioned that because we we have slang for that
3: (laughs) It's great. And now, now you said that you you've been ex- an extra in in episodes. How many have you actually been an extra in?
6: Uh, is it just is was it is until, just the first? Up until this point, yeah, just just okay. program.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So so you've had the experience of actually wearing the uniforms are they when i when i watch Vic up on the bridge he's you know a lot of times he's stretching his neck or anything like that are they uncomfortable because of the fabric or is it just because they're they're you know tighter because of the way that the look was back in the 60s
6: (laughs) that's a good question um (laughs) from a female perspective i think that it's 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 the only reason that it would be uncomfortable is because you're basically just wearing a shirt um but in general they're not like even for the guys they are not super uncomfortable um like the the collars might be a little right. tighter than you're normally used to, but otherwise the fabric is pretty nice. Um, it's it's not super breathable, so like when it's really hot, it gets a little uncomfortable. But but they're not bad.
3: Yeah, yeah, because it never gets hot in Georgia, in Southern Georgia. <laughs> oh my gosh, I driving know. in was like humid. The like the windows were bleeding. It was dri- driving up from the airport to the oh, to yeah. the studio. Yeah.
5: <laughs> oh yeah.
3: So. With all of these episodes, and I asked the exact same question, Ginger, so I'm going to ask you the same thing. With all these episodes, of course, it's it's kind of hard to probably pin down one specific memory that will always stand out. But I'm going to put you on the spot and ask, is there anything that has been a memory as you've made these episodes that will always stand out as one of your favorite things being involved in this project?
6: Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's... That's such a hard question. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like this team is is just so close to my real family, and this this set is so close to home that it it I feel like it would it would be like almost disrespectful to just choose one. Um, so standouts, I guess. Um, I loved I, I got to be there for several weeks while they were building engineering um, while Ginger oh. and I redid all of the, the wardrobe room we got paint repaint it and stuff. Mm-hmm. So getting to watch them build engineering was really good. Um, one of my first memories of Ginger was <laughs> she came out and asked me to swap out with her while they were scrubbing the green paint off of Lou Ferdinand's hands. Um, and I, <laughs> I was just like a stupid kid at that point. So I was like, oh, my gosh, like that was so intimidating. Um <laughs> Or like when I first met our um, our sound assistant Michelle Siles, uh, she was like cleaning, and she's like, "Come over here and help me clean because they keep telling me the captain's coming." <laughs> and um, and I've always thought that was really funny. That's
3: uh, great. Yeah. Like, uh,
6: the day that Sarah was on set too was really good. She's she's such a like a cool, like witty, smart kid. So oh yeah. There yeah. was a lot of good yeah, moments then too.
3: That's awesome. One of the things you pointed out was the engineering set. And I think as, as Bill and I were getting the tour, um, it, it's, it's, it's massive and it's, it's it mm-hmm. really, it, I mean, it, it's like nothing we've ever seen. Of course, the bridge is, is it set on its own? And we've got a whole section that we're going to be talking about the bridge that, but uh, it's unbelievable what, uh, what bill smith and and his team have done with that creation of the engineering set and it sounds like um what you mentioned a moment ago is is there was a lot of um a lot of things that had to be uh moved around in order to build that set you mentioned that you had to redo the wardrobe uh area and all that
6: yeah uh, yeah actually um yeah that's definitely our biggest set it's the only one that has a ceiling which is cool Mm -hmm. um but that whole side of the building was the church that that was in it before we were there. So Mm -hmm. the whole area that, um, engineering is in now and that the warp core is in, um, used to be Sunday school rooms. So like they were ripping all this carpet out and, you know, they had to take down all these walls, like there were chalkboards everywhere, like stuff like that, just like piles of stuff that had been in storage, that kind of thing. Um, there's actually still a piece of wall somewhere Oh my gosh, I forget the name, but it says like, I think it's Miss Jenny. It says Miss Jenny loves you. And it was a piece of wall that was in one of the Sunday school rooms that like, like Vic thought was so funny. So they saved it. And so like, we still have this piece of wall from one of the Sunday school teachers. Um, oh but yeah, it, it took a good summer <laughs> to build <Yeah>. that set.
3: <laughs> well, the uh, the time and effort has paid off because it it is absolutely beautiful. Yeah. And I understand that um, if not only just on that set, but maybe other other uh, locations, is that there are little hints to the cast and crew scattered throughout. Uh, engineering on panels and stuff like that do you know if you are one of those
6: yeah yeah that was, that was a fun little <laughs> call out um, yeah our uh, our art department lead um will he had to put stickers like if you look at the original engineering site you can see they're like little tiny bits of text all over Mm -hmm. like, and they look like little stickers or little buttons or something. And you you know, there's no way to tell what they say. Like nobody knows. So he was like, I'll just make it up. And so he put a ton, like, I think basically everybody he put all of our names on it. So for mine, it's like H, you know, like B R K Y or something like, it's just like, (laughs) so there are stickers everywhere. And then, um, uh, there's one that he put in a bunch of different places, which was um, O-G-E-P, which stands for O oh, Great Executive Producer.
5: <laughs> oh, okay. gee. Yeah. So hey, I those are that's
3: like, for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those are the,
6: those are the, uh, the extra big stickers.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm sure he appreciates them, too. That's great,
6: yeah.
2: <laughs> While everyone here took a different path to be part of this production— Their love and passion for Star Trek is evident in everything they do. And in the case of Hannah and Ginger, that passion translates to the very look of STC. But it's also evident in the friendship that has grown out of their work here at Stage 9. Immediately adjacent to wardrobe is the brand new engineering set. Seeing this on screen almost doesn't do this set justice because it's enormous and beautiful all at the same time. In the background... Someone had the presence of mind to put the ambient noise from engineering on repeat and play it constantly. It's a small touch that lends character to this space, which, at this time, isn't lit with studio lights or ready for filming, at least not today. Today, people are working on some finishing touches for the next episode to be shot. This space will be used for episode 6, but the engineering set will also be featured prominently in episode 7 as well. One of the elements they're working on today is something every starship has, but we didn't see it often in TOS, the dilithium crystal chamber. There are no existing plans for this element. They're relying on on-screen reference shots to recreate the chamber, and the parts will be printed with a 3D printer. We were shown the pieces by John Roberts, husband of our good friend Cat Roberts, who plays Lieutenant Palmer. And the attention to detail is just phenomenal. On screen, it's going to look amazingly close to the way it did in the season three episode, Elan of Troyus," when Spock and Scotty are trying to adapt the Dolman's necklace to power the Enterprise. John is understandably excited, and we are beyond amazed at the job they've all done. Now, heading up construction for Star Trek Continues is a gentleman with an awesome name, Will Smith. Not to be confused with the actor slash rapper or the co-host of this here podcast. He's behind the scenes exacting the reproductions you see on the screen. He's recreated things with meticulous detail down to the button placement and flashing lights. The amount of work that he's put into this production is just staggering.
3: Our next stop was Sick Bay. Probably a good thing because I was feeling a little bit dizzy. You know, There we were. Two bio-beds, complete with the most beautiful red and gold blankets, straight out of the 1960s. Even with all the lights and panels turned off, it looked amazing. We entered from the side that the camera usually would film in when there was a sickbay scene, so we had a beautiful view out of sickbay, passing through the open doors out into the corridor. Off to the side was a spare bio-bed for those scenes when more than two were needed, was kind of odd to see offset where extra equipment was sitting or tools and construction beams were, but it really didn't take away from anything at all. Making our way out into the corridor, the next stop was the transporter room, and the first thing I noticed were the lilac walls mimicking the look from season three of TOS. After so many years of watching the original series, this was the one thing that I never really noticed at all. And to top that, The transporter pad is carpeted. I'm not even joking. Carpet on the transporter pad. Who knew? I could picture in my mind literally Vic getting ready to shoot a scene and halting it to get the vacuum out to do one more final cleanup just before the cameras rolled. Since our visit, I've tried as hard as possible to notice on TOS episodes the carpet on the transporter, but I haven't been able to notice it. It's just another example of the amazing attention to detail that this group has. Bill and I were walking the corridors of the USS Enterprise. Literally. It's not an exaggeration. When you're on the sets, you can't help but realize you are on the ship. It was really a surreal experience to take in every single detail of the ship that we have idolized for almost half a century. Our path next took us to the briefing room. And I think the thing that shocked me most about this set was how much smaller it seemed to be than what I'm used to seeing on television. I mentioned this to Casey, and a big smile came across his face, and he said that there was a very good reason for that. You know, when most scenes are being shot from the briefing room or in the briefing room, the camera is actually in the wall off to the side, so it gives the illusion that the room is actually much larger than it really is. And you got to give credit to Matt Busey for his remarkable filming techniques. Now, there were a couple of things about our visit to the briefing room that were really interesting when it's not being used. First of all, all the buttons and the computer monitor that we're used to seeing there on the tables weren't actually there. They bring those into a secure storage area for when they need them so that they'll stay safe and undamaged. And secondly, there are two huge house jacks on the table of the briefing room that go all the way up to the ceiling to make sure that the beams you see at the top of the briefing room don't droop or sag due to its size. You know, humidity is a real problem in the deepest parts of South Georgia, so this helps keep the set safe and looking great, and the jacks keep the giant cross beams from bowing or warping. It was really neat to get that behind-the-scenes kind of experience while we were there. From there, we saw auxiliary control, which was used in the episode, Fairest of Them All. And with a quick redressing and a change in camera angles, it can also double as a VIP guest quarters. And, you know, in case he needs a nap, there's even a cot tucked away so he can stretch out. Exiting there, we saw the Jeffreys tubes, and you all know what that looks like. And in my mind, I could actually see Jimmy Doohan trying to repair something in the nick of time to save the Enterprise. It's a little smaller than I pictured, but the detail's nothing short of incredible, and part of me really wanted to just climb up inside there, uh, but that was balanced out by the fact that I didn't want to break anything. There's a turbo lift, and the yellow triangle ladders, and all kinds of doors, but they all pale in comparison to the final destination of this walkthrough. Off to the side of us was a large open space, and there it sat, the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. It's dark and none of the panels are lit, but it doesn't take away from its majesty. Even in its dormant state, it's a sight that just inspires awe. What's really cool is that there are new graphics above the various stations on the bridge. They're brand new high resolution prints. They look remarkable. They actually get swapped out or rearranged for every episode. And it's something that we never really thought about. But you know, it makes perfect sense. Much like its counterpart in the 1960s, the bridge is not a full set. A good chunk of it is open to allow for shooting scenes. And the biggest surprise is, of course, that there is no view screen. We never stop to think that that might be the case, but it certainly doesn't take away from anything when you're standing there. You know, there's also a brand new bridge station that's just been finished next to the left of Spock's science station. It's the navigation system's console, and it will play a very important role in one of the episodes being shot this week. You know, it's a lot to take in, and it's difficult to not feel overwhelmed. You know, we're standing by the edge of the navigation station, and we're talking about how ma- how amazing everything looks. And then all of a sudden we hear voices in another part of the set. You know, Voices kind of carry a lot walking around uh, this stage. From sickbay, we actually hear Vic Bignana guiding a tour of the set, and his guest is none other than Rod Roddenberry. This VIP that was being welcomed to the set is the actual son of Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry. Rod's never been to the set before, and Vic was showing him every detail, and we could actually hear the amazement in Rod's voice and the sheer joy in Vix, as he gave this special tour. Casey informed us that there was a possibility that this tour might be recorded and we should try to avoid the shoot so that we don't disrupt it. So we're going to have to be quiet and try to go around the back of the set to avoid their various stops as they're going along from, from area to area. You know, it, it was a sight that wasn't unlike watching Scooby-Doo on Saturday mornings. You know, you can set the scene. There you are. There's a hallway with a series of doors on each side and Shaggy and Scooby are going in one, one door while being chased by a ghost, only to come out a different door with the specter right behind them. That's what it felt like. And it just, it went, it was, it was hilarious. And that's exactly how it felt. You know, we managed, thankfully, evade Rod's tour and we find ourselves coming back to the common area from behind the engineering section and what appeared to be the only air-conditioned part of the set. In it is the interior of a shuttlecraft which was totally unexpected and we're definitely gonna have to investigate that later for sure.
2: Back in the common area it's time for more coffee. (laughs) Dan and I sit at one of the cafeteria tables and begin to debrief on what we just saw and I'm not gonna lie We were truly putting the geek in Trek geek at that moment. I felt a bit like one of those characters in the classic Get a Life skit on Saturday Night Live asking questions of William Shatner. I was obsessing on all the things about the set and the decoration that I took for granted seeing on television every time I watched an episode. After checking the recording gear for the thousandth time discussing our strategy for getting some audio, we see Vic Mignogna emerge from his tour with Rod. He chats with Rod and with Casey and immediately gets a series of questions from other crew members about the details for that day's shoot. One of the things we noticed immediately was the relaxed atmosphere at the studio. Everyone has a job to do, and and many have multiple jobs, but there's no sense of ego or attitude. There are no encampments and no fiefdoms. Everyone here wants to help make this production the best it can be, everyone is willing to help everybody else. It's truly an amazing collection of artists and creative people. They've all been recruited by Vic, and on a daily basis, he must answer hundreds of questions like the ones he's getting today. He's unfazed by it all, and he's got the confidence in the team he's collected here to help bring his vision to reality. And then he looks to his left and sees us sitting at a table. A smile from ear to ear came across his face as he excused himself and walked over to us. Captain John
0: Christopher, U.S. Air Force, serial four eight five seven nine three two, Blue J four.
3: Chapter 4, The Other Tour In addition to being the executive producer of Star Trek Continues, Vic Mignogna is, quite simply, an amazingly gracious host. Very few people get to come to set, but those who do are welcomed as part of a family. And part of that welcome is a tour by the man himself. When we told him that Casey had actually taken us through the set just before his tour with Mr. Roddenberry... He jokingly said, he did what? Well, there's a Casey tour, and then there's my tour. With that, we were on our way back to set. Having Vic walk us to the bridge set was one of the most wonderful moments of the entire trip. The smile on his face as he watched our reactions told us everything we ever needed to know about his passion for this project. He told us after the fact that one of his greatest joys is watching people react to being on the bridge. Anyway, there we were, and he asked us what we thought. I had no words. Then we noticed, or he noticed, that everything was powered down, and that just wasn't good enough. He looked up at the ceiling and yelled, Hey guys, I'm on the bridge. Light it up few minutes later, everything came to life. Consoles, displays, buttons, overhead lights. The bridge was real, and we were standing in it with the captain. It's hard to adequately express the intense feeling of awe we felt standing on the bridge this second time. It's one thing to see it powered down, but it's completely lit now, and all the buttons glow, and it it takes on a whole new life of its own, and it's its own character. Vic told us he's always concerned that seeing the set might take people out of the magic of the show, but that certainly wasn't true for Bill and I. You know, This moment was the realization of a dream, a dream we weren't sure we'd woken up from since it was all so very surreal. Well, it was then that Vic said the five words that struck fear into both Bill and I. Go ahead. Have a seat. He was, of course, referring to the captain's chair, and we were both immediately panic-stricken. Captain Kirk was offering us a chance to sit in the center seat. Bill and I looked at one another, and I I think we were both unable to literally move. We were both pretty intimidated by the prospect, and I don't think either one of us wanted to be the first one to sit in the chair. Look, Vic said, you came all this way. One of you better sit in that chair. Well, it, it felt a bit like the scene in Star Trek The Motion Picture where Kirk tries to get Spock to sit down. I looked at Vic and started shaking my head back and forth, going, no, 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 you, you just can't sit in the chair. But then again, you can't really disobey the captain's orders, can you? So I stepped up on the platform, turned around, and just sat. I looked down at those wood paneled armrests. I saw the buttons, the lights, everything. The jettison pod button, the freaking jettison pod button i looked up and said make it fast ben i may have to go to red alert and vic was grinning from ear to ear and i think he said something as kirk too but truth be told i really can't remember the thing that surprised me most as i swiveled from side to side is looking forward to where the view screen would be but that's the thing it's not where you expect it would be directly in front of the navigation console. No, actually, instead, it's off just a little bit to the left off stage. And there's this big plywood wall there. And on that wall are the words view screen. Look here written on it. I never realized it was off center when the cast is filming. And it's just another piece of awesomeness that I need to digest. You know, looking back now, I truly believe I may have been in a minor state of shock to be sitting there. I think I was a little overwhelmed, and I I actually remember tearing up a bit while I was looking around this set. I distinctly remember, however, looking over at my good friend, smiling, and getting up to let him partake in this amazing
2: experience. Then it was my turn to sit in the chair. It's an experience that's hard to remember in hindsight because I was just in such a daze from the excitement and the overwhelming feeling of awe. I remember spinning around in the chair to a Spock station, and I remember wanting to press the switches and hit the comm panel. I didn't because I was so absolutely terrified to touch anything, but I so wanted to recreate scenes from Star Trek with myself in the chair, and, and then it became a very different reaction for me. For me, the Starship Enterprise was my boyhood ship of dreams. As a young boy, it was where my mind always went to, I've walked those quarters in my mind hundreds of times as a kid. The captain's chair? I sat in that seat every day commanding the Enterprise on all kinds of missions to explore and to boldly go where no one has gone before. The simple act of sitting down made it all tangible. It was something I could touch. The 10-year-old in me felt like he'd come home, and there were times growing up where I wished that actually had been my home. It's not something I've talked about a lot, at least publicly, but the reason I spent so much time walking the Enterprise in my mind is because it was my safe place. Now, long before I was born, my father had been a gunnery sergeant in the United States Marine Corps. I was the youngest of his sons, and much to his dismay, I was far more sensitive than my much older half-brothers he thought I just needed to toughen up and thus started more than a decade of being treated like a Marine recruit when no one else was around. There was a lot of name-calling and screaming. There was demeaning talk and diatribes on how I would never amount to anything. When no one else was around, it wasn't uncommon for my father to grab me by the neck, the back of my hair, and yank it back so hard. And he could literally scream at me only inches from my face. In those moments... The Starship Enterprise was the place I would go to in my mind to feel safe and to feel free. Sitting in the captain's chair on this particular day was incredibly overwhelming for that reason. And it was difficult to hold back the tears I could feel welling up within my eyes. If our tour ended right now, I could leave knowing that I finally came home. There was one other person who had entered the bridge area while I was sitting in the chair, and that was Star Trek Continues composer Andy Farber, who, coincidentally, had just sent me a friend request on Facebook earlier that morning, and neither of us knew the other would be on set. Now, if there's anyone who could qualify as a Trek geek, it's definitely Andy. Not only does he retain a vast amount of knowledge in the form of Star Trek trivia, but he also has the same level of expertise on the music of Star Trek. The man is like a walking encyclopedia. This, too, is his first visit to set. And the word we all seem to be using with any regularity is amazing. You know, it was at this point we finally remembered that we had our phones on us. You know, the phones that have cameras on them that mean you could actually take pictures. I don't know why it didn't occur to us earlier, but it finally did at this particular point, and there may have been a selfie or two taken on the bridge, I won't lie. Rod Roddenberry wandered back to the bridge at this point, and he and Vic took a few pictures. I think I could have spent all day sitting on the bridge and just taking photos. We all wandered back to the common area so that the crew could set up for today's shoot. For me, that meant it was time for more coffee. And I really needed it considering I still had Aaron Neville stuck in my head. Thanks, Dan. As I was pouring my next cup, I was greeted by a woman who I hadn't yet met, and she was extremely friendly. Are you enjoying your time with us? She asked. I replied that I was, and the smile on my face must have made that statement seem completely obvious. She said that it was a treat to have us here, and she was glad that we could make the trip down. I thanked her and introduced myself, and finally she replied with three words that really blew me away. I'm Vic's mom. I I was just stunned. You know, Dan and I have always imagined Star Trek continues as a family, but we didn't think there would be actual family working behind the scenes. It's amazing to think that the woman who raised Vic and saw all of his Star Trek dreams, and probably his home movies was now helping him realize his dream in some way. I thought of how many times she must have sat through Star Trek as Vic watched it and never knew back then that she would be looking at Star Trek in a completely different way today. She told me to be sure to let her know if there was anything we needed. And she told me that once you've come to visit, your family. I joked that if that meant I was being put to work, I was completely okay with that, and we both shared a laugh. Now, while all of this is going on, I can see more cast members filing in and getting into costume and makeup. There's an energy filling the studio now as people are getting ready for a day's work in front of and behind the camera.
3: The scenes being filmed for the next couple of days are all on the bridge, which excites us to no end. It's everything we hoped for. Sure, we would have been excited to see filming anywhere, but the bridge is central to everything that happens on Star Trek. Today, parts of Episode 6 are being shot. And as we walked into the area that the bridge set is in, Bill got a good look at the slate, which had the title for the episode, Come Not Between the Dragons. At this point, we have no idea what it means. Bill knows it's from Shakespeare because he's the educated one, not me. I have no idea how it relates to the story, nor does Bill, but one thing for sure, it has definitely got our brains working overtime. So the scene is set. The bridge crew is assembled on the bridge. The crew's ready. The cast ready, the episode director Julian Higgins is working through some last minute details before the camera starts to roll. We have no idea how everyone on set is feeling, but we are nervous as hell. As someone new to a live and working set, you can imagine as the quote, new kids on the block, Bill and I didn't want to bring attention to ourselves. I could imagine the horror if I knocked something over in the middle of a scene or, God forbid, sneezing when Kirk was giving an order. And believe me, the opportunity was definitely there. We stood for the most part off to the left of the bridge, if you're actually looking at it from offstage, and there's a lot of stuff behind the cameras. There's furniture, there's equipment, lights, fans, wires, people. Oh, and just a little thing like the episode director. All we wanted to do was stay out of the way and soak it all in. In between takes while the camera was being readjusted or moved... Bill and I would back up a little bit from where we were standing and be back in the main corridor of the Enterprise. We could talk a little easier there and and tell each other what we were thinking. And it was pretty cool to be able to walk the corridor unattended and just look at every detail as we discussed what we just witnessed on the bridge. Even though we were those aforementioned new kids, we were made to feel so very much at home by everyone on the set, and that couldn't be more evident than when Matt Busey was having trouble with his back in between takes. Working that camera at odd angles, in addition to being responsible for setting up all the overhead lights for every scene, must take a lot out of a person's back, especially someone as tall as Matt. At one point, he had to lie on the floor and stretch it out. It was still bothering him, so when Bill and I were standing at the very end of the bridge set and watching, first assistant director Scotty Whitehurst took off his shoes to walk on Matt's back. Well, who was right there to help balance Scotty but our very own executive producer Bill, and it was glorious. It looked like Scotty and Bill were dancing together as Matt laid on the floor. I knew that Bill felt right at home, and there were no questions asked, no who-are-you looks or anything like that. It was people coming together to help in any way, even if it was one of us new kids. Shortly after this, filming resumed, and from our vantage point next to the navigational subsystem's control, we were practically standing right on top of the scene. We never imagined we'd be this close to the set during the actual shoot, and it was mesmerizing. So here's the scene. Just a few feet from us, Vic Mignogna strides across the bridge by the engineering console where Cat Roberts is seated and stops in front of Rod Roddenberry at the Environmental System Station dressed as a red shirt. Rod hands the captain a data card, and Vic steps down next to where Grant Imahara and Wyatt Lenhart are at the command module. The shooting is seen for the prologue of this episode, and joking about Chekhov wanting to earn some stripes for his uniform when something strikes the Enterprise and crashes through the hull. They go through several different takes of the scene, presumably so that director Julian Higgins can have a few different looks. Vic even asks for another take to deliver a line slightly differently. Each of the takes seems great to us, but there are subtle nuances to each of the takes. At one point, Wyatt ad-libs a line that makes everyone on set laugh, and we think that one might be saved for the episode's gag reel. Julian has a really easygoing and collaborative style on set, and he's very efficient. Observing the monitor that he references while working, he has a clear understanding of how Star Trek looks, and if this preview is any indication, his episode is going to be spot on. Not far from where Julian is standing, we observed something that we didn't expect to see on set all day. It's director James Kerwin, and he's seated in front of a laptop. James has been involved with STC since the third episode in some fashion. And tomorrow he's going to be directing part of episode seven on The Bridge. But today he's doing something very different. And we're very curious as to what he's doing.
4: Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um uh for uh when I first came on Star Trek Continues, I was a one-time writer director, it was just for episode three. Then they brought me back on to direct four and made me story editor. Story editor is a misnomer kind of title, it doesn't mean script editor. Yeah, story editor is kind of a person who works with the executive produce, producer on overall creative decisions about the show. Um, and so uh, the, I was story editor for episodes four and five. And then starting with episode six, they, they, they bumped me up to co-producer. Um, so a lot of times, yeah, I, was not, I did not direct episode six. Um, but when you guys were actually there on set, I was not writing. What I was actually doing was... I was um, ingesting and syncing the footage um, because oh, for the wow. first time we, d- we decided that it would be beneficial um, for our director, Julian Higgins, and Vic to be able to watch synced dailies of, of the previous day's footage um, mm-hmm. and see you know see how things were coming, if anything was missed here and there, stuff like that. So um, for the majority of episode six, when you saw me sitting at, at Matt Busey's Laptop. That's what <laughs> that's mm-hmm. what I was doing. I was ingesting and syncing the footage. Okay.
2: Yeah. So before okay. that episode, did you guys have to wait uh, days, or or what was that like?
4: Um, I don't know how they did for episodes one and two. That's before I was there. Okay. Um, for for three onwards, um, yeah. Basically, what happens is is that uh, Matt Busey, our DP, stores all the footage on two hard drives. You know, one main one and a backup one. Um, all the sound is recorded um, by Ralph Miller, but it is not jam-synced. So, uh, the time, the, there, there's no time code on it, in other words. So the sound, um, and the video footage have to be post-processed together, uh, in Final Cut Pro to be able to be viewed. Um, and that process usually took place, you know, in, in, within a week or two following the shoot of any given episode. And then Vic and I could sit down and look at the footage. There's a break in the action while lights are
3: set up and the camera is moved and everyone's remaining on set while the adjustments are being made and it's then that we hear a voice calling our names and it's coming from a direction that totally blew us away.
2: Bill, Dan, come take some pictures. The person making the request is Vic Mignana, and he's calling to us from the captain's chair. Yeah. That's not scary at all. We hesitate for a moment, and I had a look on my face that I'd like to think said, Are, are you sure? He waves us over with his hand, and we pose for several photos by STC set photographer. Donald Houston is the set photographer, and he takes a metric ton of pictures for every shoot. That really must seem like an exaggeration of sorts, but I assure you it's not. Vic is seated in a pose that's very reminiscent of Captain Kirk as we flank either side of the captain's chair. It's a moment that's a little surreal for both of us, and certainly one we didn't expect. In fact, in the first version of the photo taken with my phone, Dan isn't even smiling, something I gave him endless grief about for quite a while. With our mini photo shoot complete, we walk over to the communications console to say hi to Kim Stinger, Kim had been on our podcast and was so wonderful to get to know. She welcomes us like friends she hasn't seen in forever. There are laughs, there are hugs, there are more photos. (laughs) We chat for a bit and then realize we need to get off the set again so that shooting can resume. Sorry, Julian. However, before that can happen, someone on set has realized that Vic has odd marks on his captain's tunic. The wooden arms of his captain's chair were freshly stained the night before and Unbeknownst to Vic, they weren't completely dry. As a result, there are now wood stain marks on the sleeves lining his forearms. There's not really time to deal with it now, so as long as his arms stay down, no one will really notice. Shooting on the episode 6 prologue continues through the morning with different takes and angles. The, The cast and crew are incredibly efficient. They get what they need, they get it right, and then they move on to the next thing. You've probably heard Vic talk on our podcast about how they work and that it's not really an atmosphere that lends to volunteerism per se, and we see firsthand how true that is. Everyone that's gathered here knows what they're doing. They may be in various stages of their career or their experience, but they're all incredibly good at what they do. We get the sense that they simply wouldn't be here otherwise. People of all skill levels do need to eat, however— and that means it's time for a lunch break.
0: I once was the captain of the enterprise. In case you remember me, Christopher Pike, just thirteen years, but a lifetime ago.
5: Chapter 5
3: Feeding the Troops. Lunch at Stage 9 is a family affair. At first, Bill and I had planned to duck off site somewhere and have lunch away from the studio, mainly because we weren't part of the cast and crew. In our minds, we didn't have the expectation to sit down and partake because we were guests, and in all honesty, we truly didn't want to impose or assume anything. That notion was dispelled very quickly, however, when Vic, Casey, and just about everyone else insisted that we stay and eat with everyone. So, who are we to argue? The common area we were in earlier has now become a cafeteria of sorts, with a makeshift buffet and people sitting down to eat. The cast has put robes on over their costumes to ensure they don't get anything on them, and we get into line last. We figured there was no way we should grab our food before anyone working on the show. We find a place to sit down, and at the table already are Lisa Hansel, Donald Houston, and Little Michelle, among others. Little Michelle, as she introduced herself to us, is Michelle Siles. She's called that because, well, the other Michelle on set is a bit... mm, larger than life, shall we say? She may not have the nuclear energy and boisterous personality of our dear friend Michelle Specht, but little Michelle has a crucial job on the set of Star Trek Continues. And in this episode, she's the boom operator. In every scene we've watched today, Michelle was standing just out of frame somewhere with a microphone to capture all of the dialogue in the scene being filmed. And believe me, it's a hard job, and we give her all the credit in the world. At various points through the morning, we watched Michelle with her arms extended above her head holding the microphone for long periods of time. A job that we both question our own ability to do half as well as little Michelle does. Lunchtime conversation was not what we expected at all because it was largely about us. Instead of us asking questions and learning about the people on set, the tables were turned with genuine curiosity about us and our podcast, how and why we got started, and what we love about it. It evolved into a great discussion about Star Trek and fandom, and there are lots of laughs everywhere. In fact, that's actually a really great description of the entire room. There's laughter and joy and people enjoying each other's company everywhere. There's no stress. There isn't any dread to, quote, go back to work. Lunchtime, like everything else about this production, is something the cast and crew experiences together. Like all lunch breaks, though, they must come to an end and the people assembled must get back to work. This afternoon shoot, though, is about to become a little bit more complicated due to the absence of a certain Vulcan science officer.
2: Chapter Six. Downtime. Not every member of the cast is on set today. Some of the absences are planned. Both Chuck Huber, who plays Dr. McCoy, and Michelle Speck, who plays Dr. McKenna, are not scheduled to shoot until the following week. Guest star Gigi Edgeley from Farscape is scheduled to be in around the same time. One notable absence, though, is totally unplanned. Todd Haberkorn, the actor who plays Mr. Spock. Has been delayed and has not yet arrived on set. Today he's the victim of flight delays and, due to weather, he will arrive late. This has caused a delay on set and the shooting schedule will have to be reworked to accommodate his absence. The delay may be an inconvenience to the cast and crew, but Vic sees it as a prime opportunity for us to talk to some people, including him. We grab our gear and we head to a darkened sick bay. Vic has a cup of coffee and an unopened bag of snack-sized Doritos in his hand. He sits on one of the bio beds and eventually reclines back, propping himself up on one elbow, and we get some interesting revelations on episode six. So obviously, we were on set today, watching the goings-on. Glad to have you. Uh, we are elated to be here. Oh, good. Beyond okay. words. This guy has had total fanboy moments the whole day. Well,
0: right I got to tell you, I, one of my favorite things is is sharing this with people. Um, Everybody in my production team knows that if anybody special comes to set, they are not permitted to walk through these sets until I can give them a a tour because I'm so proud of what we've done here. And and I want to be the one to see other people's faces and other people's reactions to it.
2: It's funny because when we first had you on, we talked about your first reaction standing there in costume on the bridge. And you talked about it like a come-to-Jesus moment. And it was interesting because my first... Time walking onto that set, I felt very much like a young kid walking into a gigantic church for the first yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Because it was almost like wow,
0: there was an honest and a, and a grandeur to it. Yeah. I mean, granted, it's a set and it looks
2: maybe slightly well, smaller, yeah, but person, it's, it's but,
0: like you know, yeah. it's like seeing the Colosseum in textbooks your whole life, yeah. and right. postcards, and in movies, and and you know it exists somewhere. But you know all you have is your imagination of it, and to actually see it and to be able to walk up to it and touch it, and like this is the one and only one, yeah, you yep. know the one and only Coliseum, and I am here, you know there's no place. there are very, very few places on earth that you could walk onto the bridge of the original enterprise, mm-hmm. and I would dare say no place that you can walk through the entire sound stage right. yes. as complete yeah. as, as what you can hear. That's right, because we both were intimidated to sit in the chair this morning.
3: And and you ordered us to sit in the chair. <laughs> we didn't. Uh, I, I think Bill said, Dan, you froze for like five seconds before you moved, and then I didn't want to get out. I just wanted to sit there like Matt Decker, and I don't believe in your authority to relieve me. It was great. It was awesome. I think, I think my first visit to the set was surreal. I mean, it just it 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 didn't it didn't seem real. And we talked about this a little bit. You've seen probably a wide range of emotions of people that have visited the set and yeah. what they what they show on their face the first time that they're standing not only near the bridge but on it. Yeah, I and mean, that's really
0: something. Yeah. Well, I you know had the privilege of you know giving Rod Roddenberry a tour today. That was so cool. And uh, <laughs> it was such a thrill to see him react the way that he did and then of course you know Doug Drexler is going to be coming in Mm -hmm. at the end of the shoot and he has never seen anything like this and and he's going to I expect he'll just geek out and become a 15 year old again as well
2: (laughs) that's how I felt today
0: and that's it's like when you've seen a great movie and you take your friends and you go with them even though you've already seen it Mm -hmm. and it's more fun for you to watch your friend enjoy the movie than it is to see the movie again Yeah You're more excited To watch them Experience it For the first time And that's how I feel About the yeah. sets Pause um, That's right. We right They want
6: to block everything
0: They want to block everything?
6: Because Todd's not ready yet But Julian wants to block The next
0: scene Well okay Okay, okay. <laughs> I'll tell him oh, you, Will you tell them? Uh, well you don't have to Tell them anything I can, I can tell them <clears throat> the thing
8: If you want me
0: to Just tell him I'm finishing up an interview And I'll be there In a few minutes It's okay. major podcast Yes. <laughs> yes. And you know what's especially exciting? Your your listeners don't know this, but we are actually recording this in sick bay. Yes. We're we're in the sick bay right now and lounging little around little. on the, on the bed and then having chat in sick bay. So, so so let's talk about the current episode being shot today. It's episode six. Yes. We
2: know scant little about it at this point. Only what we've gleaned from being on set today. So clearly, there is a threat to the Enterprise. Which damages the hull and
0: infiltrates the ship. Mm-hmm. What, um, what's at stake here? Well, this is a, a classic episode because it has a much deeper, heavier moral theme, as all good Trek episodes mm-hmm. did. <clears throat> this episode was actually written by our dear friend Greg Dykstra. Oh, very nice. From Pixar. Uh, he is himself a huge fan of the original series. He found us online, loved what we were doing, contacted me, and asked me if I would like to screen an episode at Pixar wow, wow. so literally I flew up there and uh, and we screened an episode and He had put posters out all over the campus and we had probably at least i mean for a closed campus like that eighty or ninety. We had 80 or 90 oh. people show up wow. and in, a, in one of their small dubbing theaters and watch episode three, mm-hmm. Ferris and Mall. And after that, Greg wanted to come down and see the studio, and so he came down earlier this year when we shot four and five, mm-hmm. and we just hit it off. He's one of the nicest guys I've ever met. And we were at dinner one night here in town, and uh, <clears throat> Greg said, I've got an idea first story and I must confess in the back of my mind I was like oh <laughs> here we go One of
3: those <laughs> if I had a nickel goes in the folder <laughs> right you know
0: I mean everybody's got a story and then when they tell it you're like oh my god you know really <laughs> what's the point you know Captain yeah. Kirk if I fight the Klingons I'm like are you kidding me but he told me a story which already grabbed me right off because it was about a creature and I, knowing that we're going to do a limited number of episodes, I want there to be episodes that are very representational of what the original series was. So I wanted to have a historical episode, like episode five. Mm-hmm. Right. I wanted there to be some sequels to original series yep. episodes. I wanted th- I want there to be humor. I want to do a humorous episode. Mm-hmm. I want to do a creature episode. So he already had me interested when he talked about this creature that breaks through the hall of the enterprise, <clears throat> which you shouldn't be able to do. Right. And, uh, and this creature is, you know, seven feet tall and big, foreboding, menacing creature. But in classic Star Trek style, everybody's afraid of it. Everybody thinks it's a threat until they get it cornered, and they find out that it's more afraid of them than it is of them than, than they are of it. And while they're trying to figure out what this thing is, a larger creature shows up outside the ship. Clearly the same species, but much bigger. Wow. And what you find out is that the larger creature is the smaller creature's father, parent. Mm -hmm. So this giant creature in the Enterprise is actually a child, which is already kind of interesting but then the theme of the episode ends up being child abuse.
6: Oh, wow. Uh, wow. And,
3: right. and like it's, it's
0: hiding from, from its father who, oh. who, who wow. abuses it. Um, I mean, it's classic track. It is. a classic, it's track. classic is. track. You take some issue that is uh, emotionally packed and you know, carries a lot of weight and power to it, and then you couch it in, in an imaginative setting, and uh, and Greg Greg came up with the idea, and then because wow. of his position with Pixar, ah. he's a senior character designer mm-hmm. at Pixar. So he designed and sculpted the creature to his specifications of what it would look, what oh. it, he imagined it would look like, and then we actually hired a company in Denver, Colorado to build it because wow. you know what in the 60s yep. they'd have a guy in a suit yep that's right they yep. wouldn't suit. have had some cgi yep. thing right would have been a guy in a suit so wow. that's great. um so he wrote the screenplay and then myself and james kerwin did a little polishing on it you know as we've done the last few episodes and uh and that's what we're working on
3: so is it safe to say that will there be any interaction with you and the creature oh yeah CGI
0: wise or oh you see, have, yeah I know yeah. Uh, it'll, it'll, it'll all no, be no, the creatures know. coming here excellent and there's gonna be a guy in it excellent I mean Damien <laughs> Damien Buer is my six foot six mm-hmm. friend from LA who is coming down here in a few days the creature is being driven <laughs> from Denver because you don't dare send it yes. right yep right and uh I've seen it and I mean I we went out there for a fitting and they had a mock-up of it and it is amazing wow, it's wow. going to be <laughs> as fantastic if not more than the classic original series creatures were um, and he will be on set the the costume is so massive you can't see anything like you, there's no way to see when mm-hmm. you're in it yep so we're actually having a video system put in it. Oh, wow. Where there will be a little wow. camera yep. sticking out one of the little craters in the, in, the, in the thing. And the camera will feed a small video monitor inside so he'll be able to see where he's going and what wow. he's doing. It's got light controls built into it. It's really quite something. It's, uh, Every episode from the first
3: episode, they've all been fantastic everyone is upping its game in every episode, it seems, hmm. in terms of what you're bringing us. Like, this sounds like it's a pretty massive undertaking for this.
0: It is, and it. the Civil War episode, obviously, is oh, yeah. mo- yep. more massive than anything we've done. And you know what? It worries me that we do that because you can't possibly keep that up. Mm-hmm. You can't possibly best every, you know, the last production. Right. There's You're going you're gonna to level out, you know, it's at some point, or you'll dip. I mean everybody knows the original series had a couple of clunkers you know what I mean you can't make that many and them all be better than the last so I'm while I am very gratified that that the episodes have come out as good as they have and I'm very very gratified and humbled that people are like man this one's even better than the last this one's even better than the last one this one's even better than the last one (laughs) while I'm really gratified for that it it, kind of I try not to fall into that expectation Mm -hmm. you know what I mean because like oh this isn't going to be as good as the last one. Well, it's a, it's its own story. Right. It, it shouldn't be compared. Right. You know what I mean? It's its right. own story. And if we tell the story well, and it it moves people, then then we, you know, then we did our, then it was a success. Yeah.
3: Well, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts for being here. We love what we're seeing, and I gotta say to end on a happy note and a funny note best line I've seen you do so far in the whole thing?
6: Look, <laughs> I got a gun.
2: <laughs> He's been saying that for
0: days. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like having a campfire of green leaves blowing, blowing smoke in your face. You can't see anything out in the middle of a field with guys shooting guns behind you. We had so much fun on the oh, like outside. You buff. can tell. It was, yeah.
3: it was great. Well, that's the other thing. You can tell how much fun even here. I mean, inside. Yeah. I'm mean, Not even just on, outside, on, a, on an outside set. In here, you
0: guys are having fun. You're getting the job done, but you're having fun doing what you're doing, and it is apparent in everything. And that's, that's like I told you guys earlier, and I even said that to Rod earlier. I said, I've worked on a lot of productions, and most productions fall into one of two categories. Either they get everything done efficiently, and they hate each other, by the end of the day you know what I mean and they can't wait to get out of each other's sight and go and you know get alone by themselves or go have a big drink or something they get everything accomplished but there's a lot of stress Mm -hmm. and a lot of uh, uh, tension on set or the other possibility is you have a great time everybody's cutting up and you don't finish your day Mm -hmm. and you don't get the production shot we are and I'm very very humbled and proud to say we are the, the paradox that we have both of us. Yep. Yep. We, we, um, we, we have a wonderful time. Everybody has a great time. And we get everything accomplished as well. Awesome. awesome. Thanks, Thanks Vic. Vic. They're shooting now, so we have to be quiet.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the Doritos never get opened. They're left on Dr. McCoy's shelf in sickbay as Vic heads off to set. Hearing him tell us the theme of the episode on set is exciting and, at least for me, a little unnerving. Star Trek has always dealt with topics that illustrate the human condition, and it never really occurred to me that Continues would tackle an issue that hit so close to home for me. This experience just took on an entirely new meaning.
3: At one point during our conversation, we were interrupted with the news that John and Mary had arrived at the hotel, and I was ecstatic. Our good friends John Champion from Mission Log and Televixen herself, Mary Zerwinski, were both to have guest appearances in Episode 7. We had no idea they were going to be here at the same time, so we were very excited that we would get to see our friends on set and in costume. But more about them in a bit. With the delay in Todd's arrival and subsequent makeup chair time, Julian decided to go ahead and shoot around his scenes so that there would not be too much time lost in the day. This means that they'll shoot other parts of the script and perhaps already film scenes from different angles, which is yet another aspect of making an episode that can be just truly mind-boggling. Doing things this way, once Todd arrives and gets all spocked out, they can move on to shooting his scenes without delay. During this time, we were able to also catch up with Grant Imahara, who plays Lieutenant Sulu. Grant is instantly recognizable from over 200 episodes of Mythbusters he has peered in, or even from his brand new Netflix series, The White Rabbit Project. He's an instantly likable and engaging guy, and like us, he's an
2: absolute Trek geek. So, obviously, we're six episodes in now.
5: How did you wind up getting cast as Sulu? So, I got the role as Sulu. I, I met Vic at Dragon Con. Uh, many years back, and we saw each other again at a mutual friend's party. Right when he was starting up, uh, Star Trek continues, and he said, "Oh, oh, Grant, yeah, you know what? I've got this uh, this really cool project that I'm doing." And he started showing me pictures. He says, "Yeah, you, you like Star Trek? I'm sure like every conversation <laughs> has started this way. <laughs> <laughs> I, oh, yeah, I love Star Trek. Oh, let me show you." And so he pulls out his phone. And he starts showing me pictures of the bridge. I'm like, that is really cool. And I'm sure he, he probably saw the drool coming oh, down yeah. the, the side of my mouth, corner of my mouth. And um, I was like, yeah, you know what, Vic? If you need any help, anything like that, uh, just give me a call. He's like, okay, great. <laughs> Two days later, he's like, uh, Grant, would you be my suit? Wow. I said, oh, would my. You? Yeah, so oh my. That, was, that was how it went, and it was fantastic. Wow. It was really, it's really, been, it's been a blast doing this show. What, uh,
2: the first time you came on set and sort of stood on the bridge. I mean, because I imagine you grew up a Trekkie. Oh, yeah. It's hard to not do this, I think, right. and, and not be a Trekkie. Yeah. What was it like? Did you have this sort of.
5: Oh. You know, the first time I got onto the bridge, we were shooting the vignettes. And so yes. it was the very first time that we were all really together yeah. in our uniforms doing a thing. And. I could not stop grinning. <laughs> I mean, if you could imagine growing up with this and and fantasizing about being on the bridge and then having a set that's this detailed, this complete, and and this immersive, mm-hmm. it's it's like you know if there's such a thing as a nerd that's, <laughs> that's what I had that day. Because really, it was when when I talk about dream come true. This is a dream come true.
2: Wow. Obviously people recognize you from Mythbusters. Yes. Are people now starting to recognize you as Sulu and is that weird? Oh yeah. Now, you know,
5: it's not weird at all to get recognized for being Sulu. I mean, Mythbusters you kind of expect because, you know, it's been on for for 10 years and people grew up watching it. But no, the thing about that I'm coming to understand about Star Trek continues is that we give people something who, people who are fans of the original series we give them something that they just can't get anywhere else it's like being able to, to scratch an itch that you've had for years yeah. and years and years yeah. and to have a, a show like this do it so well and so when I think about that from that perspective about what we do for, for the fans I'm like oh yeah it's a natural that people will say I love Star Trek continues, I love what you guys are doing. Uh, you know, I want to help you. I can't wait for the next episode. Right. And out of anything that I've done over the years, this has been the one project that has gotten hundred percent approval mm-hmm. from all the feedback I've had it yep. is incredibly positive. And you know, in this day and age, that's tough to say about anything there's always haters yeah, right. out there oh, but yeah. Star Trek Continues is
2: uh, don't we know it oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah right
5: and and Trek fans are notoriously difficult yep. to please yes
2: and they have and very high standards
5: yeah <laughs> well, one, of, so,
3: one of the things you, you I want to say on one of the points that you just made is is we've said this to some of the cast that we've talked to I don't look at it as any anymore as you are playing George's character of Sulu you are now Sulu Right, Vic is now Kirk, and that's a testament to the work that you guys are doing and the dedication that you have, and it's really phenomenal to see. For for one thing, has has George seen your work and has he commented on it at all?
5: Yeah, you know, when I first started, um, I thought what I should do is is just send George a tweet. You know, I uh, Star Trek Continues hadn't come out yet, mm-hmm. but I was like, you know what? He's he's been such. a an inspirational figure to me as an Asian American kid growing up and seeing he, the, the one Asian American guy on TV who was not a thug or a gangster or, or some evil guy he right. was a mm-hmm. hero and yeah. furthermore he was part of the core crew flying the ship and so when I was very young and watching this in syndication I was like wow this is cool it's yeah. cool to see somebody like me doing these cool things okay oh.
3: Well, we'll catch up okay. again. We'll catch All up again, no problem. Absolutely, Absolutely. I Appreciate it very much. much. Appreciate you the man. time, man. All
7: right. So
3: sorry. With that, Grant was taken back to the set to shoot some scenes, and we didn't actually get a chance to sit down with him again during our visit. He was not on set for the Episode 7 shoot the next day, but, man, someday we'd love to hear the rest of his George story, and we sure hope we get the chance. As Grant is called back to set... Todd Haberkorn has finally arrived at stage nine, and his first task is to transform into our favorite Vulcan. This is a project that will take about two, two and a half hours. In reality, this means that they may only get to shoot a good solid hour or so of shooting time for Spock today. While this is going on, the Enterprise has gained a new red shirt, but not for long. On set. An impromptu vignette is being shot with Rod Roddenberry, and he gets to meet the typical red shirt fate in the process. It's pieced together quickly. The dialogue is created on the fly between Vic and the actors on set. Rod emerges from the turbo lift, excited that he's dodged duty of the landing party because, quote, you know what happens to the red shirts. He enjoys a laugh for a second or two, and then another red shirt emerges from the turbo lift, apparently going crazy and quickly vaporizes Rod with a phaser. Several different shots are taken, all of which elicit laughter from the assembled crew and spectators, and it's a moment we were glad to witness firsthand, and the moment doesn't seem to be lost on the STC crew either. At this point, John Champion and Mary Zawinski have arrived at the studio and are about to receive one of Vic Mignana's world-famous Enterprise tours. Now, We give John a lot of grief on our show, and we joke around a lot, but he's become a really great friend of ours. In addition to being one of the best at what he does on Mission Log, he was an early and great supporter of our podcast. As he and Mary are guided on the tour of the set, lighting is being adjusted on the bridge for the next scene. Bill and I are back on set, and we're kind of excited to see John and Mary's reaction on this part of their tour. Certainly both of them have been on sets and in front of the camera before, but Vic is right. There's something about being on that bridge set for the very first time. Luckily, their reactions did not disappoint in the slightest, and it was just amazing to be able to witness it firsthand. We'll get to spend some time with John and Mary tomorrow as they shoot their scenes for Episode 7. But in the meantime, the shooting day for Episode 6 is coming into the home stretch.
2: Todd is now in full Spock regalia and is reported to the bridge. The way they shot around him earlier in the day, you'd never know that Spock wasn't actually on set until now. Quick work is made of his scenes, and it completes the shooting schedule for the day. One of the things that surprises the most about the schedule here at Star Trek Continues is that it's surprisingly normal. On this set, you don't see the cast and crew working until the wee hours of the morning. They get everyone out at a reasonable hour so they can do things like eat dinner and maybe even chat with loved ones. All of the people here are volunteering their time, and that's not a fact that's lost on anyone. With the bridge powering down and the lights going off for the day, the cast begins the process of hanging up their Starfleet uniforms for yet another shift. Soon, the focus will change to dinner. People begin to say their goodbyes to us, for now. But little do we know that we'll be seeing them again sooner than we think.
6: All aboard
3: the botany! seven dinner after packing up our gear we made the short drive back to our hotel there we called our wives since our cell phones were off for the vast majority of the day and I'm sure we sounded like complete and utter nerds as we talked about our day on set at this point we're riding a total high of adrenaline and emotion and it really hasn't set in yet that we've only got one more day to be around these amazing people and as it turns out there was really no time to think about that anyway In the middle of raving about the day's events, we actually got a text from Kat Roberts asking where we were and if we were coming to dinner with everyone. And that was something that we hadn't even thought possible, but we jumped at the opportunity immediately. We got into our car and drove the literal two minutes to where the restaurant was. Upon arrival, it didn't take long to find everyone either. There were about 40 of them taking up a majority of the restaurant and at a very long table there were two open spots reserved just for us. Gathered at the table are a large portion of the cast and crew. And at our end of the table, there's John and Cat Roberts, Liz Wagner, who plays Nurse Burke, and our good friend, Larry Nemechek. Also at the table are Rod Roddenberry, Kipley Brown, who will be in Episode 7, and her husband, comedian Emo Phillips. You know, there's a funny story about that. Bill is a big Emo Phillips fan, dating back to his high school days. At one point, Emo walked right by him, and Bill said, Wow, that guy reminds me of Emo Phillips. It wasn't until several months later that he realized it actually was Emo, and he's been kicking himself ever since. After dinner, the large group splintered off into smaller groups. Some were headed back to their rooms to sleep. Others were going back to watch movies. And others were gonna go grab a drink or two at a different bar. Well, we'll let you guess which one we opted for. We
4: are in group a planet System.
2: At the beginning of this story, we talked about the middle of our journey, which was this dinner. It was the perfect ending to an amazing day of celebrating our fandom and getting an opportunity to know some of the incredible people who helped to make Star Trek Continues come to life. We knew at the table, this feeling, this, this gathering of artists, was the story that needed to be told. Like Vic had said earlier in this podcast, it's such a rarity to see this and it's something unique and special and whether these people know this or not, they've forever made an impression on us. We have only one day left in our visit, and if the first day was any indication, it's going to fly by. We feel like we just got here, and by this time tomorrow, we'll be packing to leave and head for home. We'll talk about our second day on set in part two of A Journey to Future's Past, premiering later in 2017.
1: if that isn't probably one of the most amazing recounts of a special, just the most special occasion that could happen to somebody in this type of fandom, I'm not exactly sure what is. Because when something resonates so deeply with you from the minute that you step onto the premises of this warehouse that housed the, the Starship Enterprise set, and then obviously to be given the the, uh, I don't know... It's more than a cook's tour. It's more than behind the scenes. It's something that's, it was just special. Let's just put it that way. It was just special for the both of you. Is there anything else that you can say about that that you haven't already said
2: before? Um, well, granted, this is only part one. Um, we discovered in trying to do an audio documentary, something we've never done before, that it's a Herculean task. And we we discovered very quickly we'd have to split this up into two episodes because we've never scripted anything out before. So I, there is there's another dimension of this story that we'll tell in part two, um, because you know we had the euphoria of being there the first time, and in part two we have the realization that we have to leave this place. Mm-hmm. You know, and we talk about that. We talk about uh, the relationships that we forged because. We still talk to these people from Star Trek continues regularly. You know, they've become part of our Trek family, and and we theirs, which really is kind of mind blowing to us. You know, um, we'll talk about this in part two. But after we got back from our visit, Dan and I both got in the mail cast and crew t shirts from the episode we were there for, and they don't do that for just everybody. You know, Casey Shafsky, um, just just an amazing guy, sent us a couple. Um, because he knew what the trip meant for us, and that 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 means the world to me. I try not to wear mine just so it doesn't wear out. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but that's the kind of relationship we forged for these people, and we hope to to do it justice here in part one, and we, we hope that in part two, which will premiere later this year, that that we can we can continue to do it the justice it deserves.
1: Star Trek continued to do it the justice it deserves.
3: Yes. <laughs> yeah. yes. yes. Yes, sir. Well, uh, I, yeah, I've said it a few times tonight. I, I echo those sentiments from Bill. Um, I don't want to sound too, you know, over the top, but I, I don't, I'm not lying and I'm not over exaggerating when I say it was a, it was a Jesus moment in some ways. Being on that bridge like that, it's something that, that not many people get to do. And for people that have such passion and love for the series. It was it was overwhelming. Uh, I really can't say much more than that, other than what we've already said in the in the documentary and what we'll say in part two. But uh, yeah, it really was it really was something special, Norm. You I mean, know, the only
1: the only way for me to be actually be able to experience what you experienced is for me to reach out and Vulcan mind meld, because that's really <laughs> the only way.
2: <laughs> it it really kind of is. You know, in the prologue to this this audio documentary, as we've been referring to it, um, you know, we mentioned that we thought this trip was one thing. And we soon realized it was something very different. This, this story could have been just about our visit to a set, but it really, it's about these amazing people. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't think, you know, Dan referred to it as, as, as a Jesus moment. I don't think this, this moment would have had near as much weight if all of these people hadn't been so truly and genuinely wonderful, right. um, not just to us, but to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, to walk into a building like that where there are creative people, and there's no tension. There's no fiefdoms. There's there's no turf war. It was it was beautiful. I, you know, I I use the term synchronicity at the top of the, of the documentary, and it, it truly is. It's it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen as far as people coming together, and and it's truly in the spirit of Star Trek. And that I think is what I want a lot of people to
1: just understand, crystallize, encapsulate, and try and and add into their life because. When you see what they do there and you see, obviously, the product that they put on screen and you see not just how good they are from a production standpoint, but how passionate they are, that translates into something that they are trying to do and reach a certain audience to make sure that, you know what? This is what we want you to remember what Star Trek is all about. We want to remind you that Star Trek is about hope. It's about positivity. It's about passion. It's about people coming together and working through a situation. It's about coming together as people. And I think that's something that's sometimes lost out there as Star Trek becomes more technically advanced in production, more involved in these social media fiefdoms. They miss the point that Star Trek is about trying to unify humanity. And I can't say this enough. I think that is what Star Trek Continues does best.
2: Without a doubt. You know, there are plenty of fan films, and there have been plenty of fan films. And some of them are amazing. And some of them are, you know, passionate works from fans that have never acted before in their lives. And each of them is value. This one kind of takes fan films and and kicks it up a notch you know not just the look but the stories these stories are as close to the original series as, as any story I've ever seen and light years beyond any other fan film that could be considered its contemporary the care and the trust that that they exhibit in this production says the wor- it means the world to me as a fan and it says everything well
1: as we wrap up this show I know that usually in this segment, this is where we throw your thank yous out to the people that have inspired you and have participated in the show. But before we get to that, I would like to say to both you, Dan, and both you, Bill, that it has been my great honor to be able to share this 100th episode with you. Because as Star Trek fans, this is something that is profoundly meaningful to us. It has shaped our lives in many different ways. But... It has also given me the opportunity to be able to work with you and to be able to extend my friendship to you and yours to me in return. And I think that's actually really profound in fandom, where we can actually meet people where we probably would have never met before and be able to talk about things that we care about, but then also be able to blend that into our own personal lives. So thank you for giving me your trust, and thank you for giving me the honor of being able to host this particular podcast. It is a very great honor for me to do so. Thank you.
2: You know, Norm, we we truly can't thank you enough. I mean, you are friend. You are our friend. You know, you're a podcaster that that we've admired for quite some time. And When Dan and I sat down and said, "Okay, who would we trust with this episode?" yours was the first and only name on the list. Yep. Um, we we have nothing but love for you. We are incredibly grateful that you took time out of your schedule, busy as it is, to sit down with us for this because um, it it needed the care and the precision that somebody like you brings to a podcast. And we, we can't thank you enough, brother. We really can't.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It really does mean a great deal to me. Um, so... I'm going to turn it over to you, fine gentlemen, because now this is the part of your show where you take care of the rest of your friends.
3: Thanks, Norm. And 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 like Bill said, the thanks goes to you for, for doing this uh, with us and for us. It has been an absolute honor and pleasure. Uh, we'd also like to extend our, sis- our sincerest thanks uh, to the following people without whom this episode wouldn't have been possible. Uh, so with that, we'd like to thank Vic Mignana, Casey Shafsky. Lisa Hansel, James Kerwin, Julian Higgins, Ginger Holly, Hannah Baruki, Grant Imahara, and everyone in the Star Trek Continues family.
2: By far, they are way too many to mention, and there's no way we could possibly talk to them all. But we do love them all dearly and and miss them incredibly. Dan, of course, special thanks to our great friends in the band Five Year Mission for the use of their music in not just this episode, but in every episode of Trek Geeks. We uh, we played a lot of cuts from them tonight as segment breaks and some songs you haven't heard on Trek Geeks before. And we sincerely hope everyone will head out to Mission dot net, download all their albums. They're working on Year Four right now, and uh, please show them some love as as much as we love them. We are huge fans, and we hope you will be too.
3: Yes, and we love everyone in the in the band, ex- especially Fark, because Fark Trek contends you. Oh God, I screwed that up. <laughs>
2: I'm leaving that in.
3: I'm not even, I'm not even <laughs> fixing it. Just go, Norm. Just take
1: it. <laughs> well, all of your supporters on Camp Kittimer, because uh, Camp Kittimer is always growing, and all of their input you know, has helped you along the way. But there's one person in particular, and she's a friend of mine. She's a friend of yours and somebody who I love dearly, someone who I met at Star Trek 2016. And I would like to personally dedicate my performance here on this podcast to Haley, Haley Sestra, we all love you, and I wish I could see you again in Las Vegas, but Bill and Dan will take great care of you. So thank you for all of your support and what you do for Trek Geeks on hashtag Trek Tuesday. A Journey no. to Future's Past. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
2: No, I, say I can't add anything. To that it was perfect. We love Haley, and um, uh, she is part of what makes Camp Kittimer and, and Trek mm-hmm. Geeks so great. So uh, well said, Norm.
1: A Journey to Future's Past, Part 1 has been a production of the Trek Geeks podcast, executive producer Bill Smith, and was written by Bill Smith and Dan Davidson. Visit trekgeeks.com to find out more and subscribe to the podcast. For me, and for Dan Davidson, and for Bill Smith, thank you very much for listening to Trek Geeks 100. Live long and prosper.
2: Coconut! (laughs) Coconut! I, yeah, you knew I was
3: going to throw one in, wait, no matter wait, wait. how serious the episode was.
2: It's the 100th episode, and you brought that to the table? You ah. know the coconut?
3: Oh, the, 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 the one that started it all was coconut. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, uh,
2: so say we all. <laughs>